Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. I don't know. Can you see us? All right. I can see you and hear you now. It's your beautiful background. There you go. You like that? I did that special for you, man. Cool. Beautiful. I know. We're all going to go vegan after this conversation. I'm sure that's just going to happen. I'm almost 100% confident. Hey, uh, hey, I appreciate you. Come on, Jackson. So it's Jackson Foster. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't know what your last name was and we're already recording, but uh, I want to thank you in advance for coming on. Obviously we've had, we've had, you know, we've had Joel Kahn on, we've had other vegans on and we're, we're certainly, we are open to discussion. And so um, I'm just going to get right into it. I don't know how much time. Yeah, Where are you, by the way? I'm, I'm currently in uh, San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua, which I have ridden my bicycle all the way here from Alaska without any buses, cars, nothing. But I also just want to like send out my regards too for you guys having me on because it's so, you know, I have a podcast, I do interviews. It's so much easier to have people on who have the same values values as you but that doesn't you know spice up the conversation and you guys clearly have really open minds so i fully appreciate you having me on as well yeah yeah let's let's jackson let's, just for the people who don't know you are a vegan and i it would be fair to say you are a vegan advocate um yeah you are currently riding your bike from i guess alaska to i guess i guess down argentina or the bottom the- bottom of south america is your goal right i'm going all the way yeah and you're doing that fully on pure vegan power all vegan food is that correct absolutely this summer in august will be my seventh year being fully vegan and i was vegetarian for about five years before uh, well, cool. when let's, I was in let's let's but just continue to and everything yeah so let's just uh let's go through your background kind of where you're from you know how you grew up what what sort of steered you into selecting veganism and then we can go back and then we can kind of get into some different sort of philosophical and you know, other arguments about this stuff. Uh, this Zach, you have any before he gets going? Yeah, what's up, Zach? How's it going? No, you're, you're speaking my language. You're, you're biking from Alaska down to South America. That's awesome. <laughs> For sure. And you're a, you're a badass ultra runner. I've uh, dabbled in trail marathon and some road half marathons. So uh, I think what you do is amazing. And one day it's like one of my biggest life goals to run 100 miles. So you're awesome. Oh man, well that'd be sweet. Let me know if you when if you want to try to do that. I'd be happy to help you out with anything you. One day when I get off the bicycle, but it's hard <laughs> to bike much in the run as well. Right, one step um, at a time. Also, I wish I could uh, be outside doing this, showing you guys the my, my beautiful beach uh, beach overlooking view here in my little apartment I'm renting in San Juan del Sur. But you know the internet is really spotty here, and this is my best spot for internet. So you got this creepy dark background, but hopefully it's all right for you guys. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 happy to get into my background. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a very loving family. I'm super grateful and privileged. Uh, but 
nutrition and food was absolutely not a part of my education growing up and not really something prioritized. Uh, my parents are awesome, shout out to my parents, but uh, we actually didn't even really home cook any meals. Um, my dad would come home from work at around six, seven o'clock every night and he'd go to some pretty decent restaurant around the LA area and bring home food and we'd sit around the table. So I never grew up around cooking, around going to farmer's markets and things like that. And, uh, you know, I ate a standard kid diet. I mean, total junk food. I ate everything, meat, cheese, dairy, uh, whatever. Uh, no, no specific interest in nutrition and, you know, probably eating a lot of MSG and oils and stuff because we were eating our food from, from restaurants. And then <clears throat> I went vegetarian purely for ethical reasons. I'm a huge animal lover. I acquired tons of pets uh, growing up. Oh, Maggie. This is my dog, Maggie, uh, who just jumped on the bed after we went to the beach this morning. Get down, my girl. Hey, get down, you dirty. Oh my gosh, whatever. I'll have to, I'll have to wash the sheets. So yeah, <laughs> I actually traveled my bicycle with my dog and pull a trailer. And in Los Angeles, we've been together the last year and a half of riding. But I went vegetarian when I was 14, uh, just because I loved animals and it made me sad to see flesh on the plate. Uh, I didn't know anything about nutrition, didn't know anything about the animal rights concept. It was a purely intuitive choice that I made. Oh, there's your pup there. Maggie, say hi. <laughs> Maggie's awesome, and she's a, she's a mainly vegan dog. We can get into that if you'd like. Uh, but uh, I actually just posted an awesome transformation pic of her. When I rescued her at the shelter, she was super obese and unhealthy, and she's doing awesome now. But um, so I went vegetarian when I was 14, didn't know anything about nutrition. I wasn't eating a healthy vegetarian diet, total junk food. Um, and then it wasn't until I was 19, I went on a gap year in between high school and college where I was exposed to some different cultures and traveling. And that's when I got interested in the concept of health and longevity, seeing people who had much better health in some Asian communities that I was living in versus the community that I grew up in. And I've also ridden my bicycle across the United States and got to see like the diet and the health of the average American. That was during my gap year. And that all started to spark my interest. Um, and I actually even went through a brief few month period when I was 19 years old in between vegetarian and vegan when I actually ate meat because that's the first time that I got into learning about nutrition. And I was reading all these different books and studies and trying a bunch of things that um, accumulated into me choosing to go the vegan path for the ethics, for the health reasons. Like for me, you know, I am someone who believes in the mainstream nutritional uh, science and research that a high plant, low meat diet is best to prevent heart disease, cancer, osteoporosis, increased longevity, you know, all of that. Uh, we would all agree that the you know, that, that is currently kind of the mainstream consensus amongst the big uh, health and nutrition bodies from American Heart Association, America Dietetics Association, Cleveland Clinic of Cardiology, etc. I know we'll go into that. Maybe those, those uh, associations are not true honest actors because you guys have a very differing opinion on that. But, you know, from looking at the big picture, what most of the smartest 
uh, nutritional researchers, doctors, and scientists say, with you guys would obviously agree, the mainstream is to eat a high plant, uh, low meat diet. I, I read a ton of books and a ton of studies and got into nutrition and went vegan at that age, and I haven't eaten any animal products since. But you know, we can get more into this. I'm also, you know, I like to think of myself as one of the most rational vegans out there. And from a, from a purely health and nutrition standpoint, you know, I, I, I am vegan, you know, I got my degree in environmental science and policymaking, uh, eating higher on the food chain when it comes to mainstream animal products is the most, most resource intensive food from uh, water use, land use, energy use. Uh, and so that's what keeps me vegan. But if we want to talk pure health, I'll be honest and say that there's no real data and science to show that a 100% plant-based diet is better than a 90% plant-based diet. You know, there is room for little bits of animal products just in terms of health, but I've been vegan just for all those reasons. I also have a YouTube channel. I believe in promoting the plant-based message, and uh, that's been what I've been doing for the last almost seven years now. So that's my background. Yeah, it's great stuff. And it's interesting. And I would, I would 100% agree with you that the mainstream message is a plant heavy, you know, light meat uh, sort of uh, sort of message. Now, as you conceded, uh, it is not a vegan message. It is not, you know, I, I would say most people, if we're going to use authorities as our benchmark for what we should do, most authorities would not say a vegan diet is the optimal diet. I mean, obviously, there are people that are vegans that are that are that are advocates of that and, and feel it is. And obviously, there are people sort of in the low carb camp or even the carnivore camp that would say opposite. So we're, 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 both of us are not lining up with, with sort of the mainstream. And so the question then becomes, uh, is one better than the other or, or, or are we both wrong potentially? And I think there's, there's certainly the potential for that. Um, let me ask you, because you say, you know, primarily it's an ethically driven motivation that, that kind of leads you to stay vegan. And I want to I want to understand when you say ethics, are we talking? What do you mean by ethics? What is what is your ethos? What is what are you trying to accomplish by being vegan? Sure. So the, the concept of being, you know, we are we're parasites to the planet. We demand fossil fuels. We demand high energy use. We demand uh, to eat food, which if you're not hunting animals or growing all your food in your backyard, there's some amount of blood on your hands from the transportation process and from big farms and all of that. So being vegan ethically means to try to lower your detrimental impact when it comes to your food choices. Um, so let's just assume that 90 whatever percent of the average humans on this planet are not growing their own food, they are not hunting, uh, which I'm going to get into later about how people should do more of those things because that is what's best uh, in terms of reducing your harm. But assuming that you are eating foods from restaurants and from grocery stores, maybe some organic, some local farmer's market, but 50% or more of your calories are coming from uh, things that you find in whether that's animal products or plant products, if you take the history of each of those food items, like a factory farm steak, which is how the vast majority of meat eaters, of course, eat, probably even carnivores eat because, you know, people are trying to reduce their food budget and things like that. If you take what it takes to get a factory farm steak, 
you know, you have 70% of the plant agriculture in America going specifically to feed, to, to feed livestock animals. So we talk about the detrimental impact of wheat, corn, and soy. They're using pesticides. They are deforesting the land. They're displacing wildlife. You know, big plant agriculture is bad. I'm a vegan who's admitting that full on. So the best way to reduce plant agriculture would be to, if you are eating from a grocery store, would be to stop promoting factory farming. In the United States, I just looked up these statistics. It's about 40% of all grain uh, plant agriculture in the world goes to feed livestock. But in the United States, 70% of the grain agriculture goes to feed goes to feed livestock based on an article that I recently read. Of course, who knows those exact numbers? I could be off by 10, 20% or not me, but whatever I read. Um, so the best way if you're shopping at a grocery store to reduce the detrimental impact uh, or the, the ethical impact to the uh, environment and to animals is to one, not eat the animals because that reduces the amount of animals you eat per year and to reduce plant agriculture. And actually the best way to do that if you're shopping at a grocery store is to go plant-based because the less money we drive into the factory farm industry, which really we can think of as the corn, wheat, and soy industry because of how many calories it takes of those feed products to go into the final product of a cow, the best thing to just reduce agriculture in general, it's basic, it's simple. I got my degree in environmental science, it's to eat lower on the food chain. That's gonna be much more resource efficient than eating higher on the food chain, which takes ton of resources, water and plants in order to fuel that system. Now, I will also be the first to admit that, and this is where I trigger vegans, but I love that because I'm all about the facts. I'm trying to reduce my impact as much as possible. If you buy a cow from a local farm, a grass-fed cow, or you hunt a few game animals per year, you butcher that up, you put it in your freezer, and that becomes like, just like you guys, 60 to 100% of your calories, and you're not buying grains or plants or factory farmed animals, that is a more ethical diet than your average vegan who is eating grains and food from the grocery store. Because yes, there are animals killed when you go through a combine and take out a bunch of corn and soy. Now, is it a lot of animals? No, and I've done research. I mean, you can also just think about it. Think about how sensitive these animals are, like mice and uh, rodents. If you have a massive combine slowly combing through a field, I've literally read studies where they put tracking devices on mice and they put them into a cornfield and then they do the combine harvesting. And obviously way before the combine's gonna rip them up, they feel the sound and rumble and they flee uh, the area. But yes, there are impacts in growing plants. So it's like, it, it's so nuanced. We can't say that a vegan diet is more ethical or a meat-based diet is more ethical because I would say that an industrial food processed food vegan diet is less ethical than someone hunting their meat or buying a single or two cows and butchering it in their freezer. But when we talk about how 90 something percent of the planet eats, they're going to grocery stores, they're not purchasing your own food, which is a problem. But if you weigh those two things together, eating a plant-based diet is going to reduce your CO2 and methane emissions, it is going to kill less animals. And that's what has led me to thinking that a plant-based diet is more ethical.
Yeah, so uh, you're breaking up a little bit, Jackson. I mean, you, you know, you're kind of melding ethics and the environment together, at least, you know, from what you're saying there. And so when we, when we separate and we tease out the ethics, and, and again, you probably represent a minority opinion among vegans, because most vegans say, you know, if you look at the, the, the sort of the vegan dictionary definition, it's to do the least amount of animal suffering and not use animal products you know, minimize animal suffering and death. That, that is kind of the definition of, of mainstream veganism. And, and as you rightly point out, if you want to actually accomplish that stated goal, then eating a meat-based, you know, regeneratively raised animal, animal that's grazed, raised on grass, that's not, you know, fed into the grain system, would be the best way to do that. And so I think if, if, if your ethics drive you towards... Uh, uh, you know, wanting to do the best thing from an ethical standpoint, then that would make the most sense to me. And then when we go into uh, agriculture, and again, you rightly point out all agriculture, plant or animal agriculture, will result into in animal death. I mean, if we look at the, the, you know, all plant agriculture requires pesticides, whether it's organic pesticide or synthetic pesticides, you know, uh, fossil fuel derived pesticides or whatever, pesticides the very name of pesticide means kill pests. It kills things and it's intentional. It's not this unintentional. I'm not intending to kill things. Therefore I'm guilt free. Any crop that's grown will require some amount of pesticides and animals will be killed. Insects will be killed. Animals will be displaced. The biodiversity, the ecology will be destroyed to do that. And so, uh, you know, yes, you may make the argument that if you eat a, a, a diet of hundred percent, factory farm and I don't really like that term but I mean if, if we want to use the fat, you know grain-fed animals you are going to contribute a, a little more to that system than, than some other systems so you're right about that more, yeah yeah hey guys if uh, I just want to follow up on some of that stuff too with uh, the the first of all I think I'm 100% in line with if you can do grass finished grass or grass fed grass finished and hunt that's that's your lowest ethical like footprint, especially if it's local. Like if I'm not driving across state borders to hunt, if I'm not, you know, ordering in my grass fed grass finished from another country, you know, as much as local as possible to me personally, that's the gold standard. And one thing I think that people should do when they're researching some of the stats with just uh, global crops for livestock production is you do want to start to unpack that number a little bit because what times sometimes when people see like X percentage of crops used for, animal agriculture. So basically, why don't we just eat that corn? Why don't we just eat those soybeans instead of feeding them to the animals and then ultimately eating the animals? Um, It makes sense. But when you actually look at that number, you can find statistics as well that when you unpack that number, the majority of that is is plant products that we grew that did not meet human consumption standards. So one way to kind of think about that, if you take like a corn stalk, you've got the little bit of corn on there that is actually edible to humans. And there's a whole bunch of waste in that material that isn't human edible, but is ruminant edible. So like, I'm not, I'd love to see the, like where you got your, your, your stats from Jackson, cause I think it'd be interesting. Um, I had some that I heard, uh, I don't know if you guys follow Bobby's perspective on YouTube, but he has this yes. segment now that he's doing where he's talking to a farmer and, and the stats they gave was that 25% of, uh, of, of uh, global crops for livestock production is what's being used to feed animals. And of that 25%, the majority of it, 92% is failed crops for humans that they didn't meet the standards. So that would be 
if you're trying to run those numbers all together, it'd be 2% of the whole, um, 23% of the 25, I guess. So, um, I mean, we're probably just going back and forth with semantics here. It would probably make more sense just to see each other's, um, each other's studies and things like that. Well, we also have to, to tease out the difference. Oh, sorry. So go ahead, Jackson. Sorry. Uh, no, all I was going to say is, of course, we got to keep on doing more research and everyone listening to this should do their own research. We're just planting seeds and sparking, uh, no pun intended, and uh, sparking interest amongst people to go look. Hey, uh, can you guys still hear me? I know it's probably a bit glitchy. I just want to make sure everything's still good. Uh, the internet is not great. Okay. I've ridden my bicycle across the United States and that's essentially a bike ride of mainly biking through wheat, corn, and soy fields. And this is one of the reasons I started to think about the environment and, uh, and you know, environmental sustainability and health back when I was 18 and 19 is that I talked to these farmers and they're specifically growing these plants to sell to the big grain elevator, which is going to animal livestock. Like the, these, uh, to say that it's just byproducts of plants, like there's literally corn uh, strains that are not edible for humans. They're being grown specifically for animals. I mean, it takes, I mean, I mean, there's a reason why the IPCC, for instance, the International uh, Go uh, Governmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which is a non-vegan bias, just uh, organization of tons of different countries, uh, environmental scientists put animal agriculture as about 15% of total greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, 15% of total greenhouse gas importation plants, uh, planes, trains, cars in general. And the reason that growing, uh, the, you know, the amount of meat that people are eating is detrimental to the environment is because it takes so many resources to grow uh, these plants for animals. It is not just a byproduct because everyone's out there eating tons of corn stalks. These are, these are uh, agricultural operations that are grown with the sole interest and purpose of growing these crops for animal feed because of the amount of cows that we uh, put into factory farms, breed into factory farms so that people can eat cheap meat. But of course, we can go back and forth and we can do more research. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if we if we just want to talk about the global sort of scale and, you know, realizing there are 1.4 billion cows on the planet and the United States has, you know, the United States has about 94 million cows and certainly the majority of grain grown uh, for much of the world is, is going to the United States uh, uh, that's the way we do it. Most of the world still doesn't do it that way. You know, uh, you know, in fact, the largest herds of cattle, uh, you know, if we look at Brazil and we look at uh, India and we look at uh, China, uh, I think we're four, we're the fourth biggest and Ethiopia is the fifth biggest. Most of the world's cattle, if we put them out there, they're, they're not, they're not in this sort of factory farm system. In fact, in the United States right now, there are 14 million cows in a feedlot. The other 80 million are not currently in the feedlot and they rotate through that as they spend the last, you know, three to four months of their lives in, in that system. And so when we look at overall greenhouse gas emissions worldwide, then we have to realize that the majority of that, approximately 80% of that is coming from developing countries. And so the issue, it becomes a really a sort of a regional issue. You know, we, we look at 
you know, you might, as you drive through, uh, I don't know if you're going to go through Brazil or not, depending on which side of South America you go down. But if you, uh, you know, as you go through Brazil, you'll see, well, yeah, there's rain, rainforests that they're deforesting. And, and you're and, and people say it's because they grow soybeans and, you know, and they cut down, well, they, you know, they cut down the trees to, to get the lumber, first of all. I mean, they, they, they don't just throw the trees in the trash. I mean, they utilize those trees and they do that. And there's an industry driving that. And then when they've cut down that area, they say, well, now we're going to plant soybeans. And so Brazil grows about 120 million tons of soybeans a year. About 80 million of that they export to China. Almost all of it is first uh, turned into soybean oil, which they extract for human consumption for the most part. And then the leftover soy meal, the, 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 the stems, the stalks, then they'll feed to the, you know, feed to the animals, they'll feed to their pigs and stuff like that. So we do have to realize that a lot of these things are dual purpose for human consumption first, and then the animals eat the leftover stuff. And it's not that the, the, the food is worldwide is necessarily grown for the animals. And so we have to, we have to, again, it's more nuanced than just that stuff. And I think it's, we have, to look at, we have to look at regional issues and regional problems and regional challenges. You know, if we want to look at the United States where, where I live and, and you live, uh, you know, our global greenhouse gas emissions from cattle is 1.9% of our, of our, uh, of what we do in the United States. And so, you know, you can say that 14% of agriculture or, or transportation, but remember most of the world, most of Africa doesn't have major superhighways with thousands and millions of cars on there. And so we have to, we have to say what's going on regionally. And so in the United States, what can I do that's going to have an impact on the environment uh, it's not giving up steak. It's, it's, you know, putting solar panels on my house like I did. It's, it's you know, not having, uh, you know, multiple jet trips. It's not, uh, uh, you know, having, you know, extra, you know, driving cars all over the place. I mean, these are, these are the things that... Yeah, uh, and, that, and that is another reason why it inspires me to be making these videos of cycling around the world, just to show people that, you know, I'm not saying everyone should do what I'm doing, but that we, we got to think about uh, our consumption of energy period, whether it's food or in our homes or in our transportation. But another, uh, if we want to get into the nuance, things that um, troubles me about the idea that grass-fed agriculture can, uh, can save the world is that let's really put it to scale. You know, supposing that you guys advocate that a high meat or pure meat, in some cases, diet is the healthiest human diet. Are we able to raise enough grass-fed animals in order to world population? And I hope that we would all agree that the only way that some people like you guys and people in uh, or people of a wealthier class in the United States specifically can eat that kind of diet means that 90 or more percent of the population, if we want to get rid of uh, grain-fed or factory farm animals, pretty much 90% or more of people are going to have to be plant-based because it takes about, you know, on average, it's about 15 more times land efficient to grow calories of potatoes, corn, wheat, and soy than it is to raise a grass-fed animal. So it is completely unscalable for uh, to eat. And if we want to talk about hunting, which is, of course, the most ethical and environmental way to eat meat because you're not contributing to agriculture at all, you know, the, a tiny minority of Americans can eat uh, hunted meat if we wanted to feed a high meat diet to the whole population, there'd be no more wild animals. So the only way that 
we can do grass-fed models and hunting models is that maybe 10, 20% of people are eating that way and the other 80% of people are gonna have to be eating plant-based. Like I'm not saying that's a reason to take a dig at the health impact of the diet that you promote because clearly the big issue is that we have too many people on the planet at least in my opinion you know i've been hearing some things from a guy primal edge health tristan uh who's another carnivore guy who says that the world is not overpopulated and that's not contributing to climate change that's absolutely crazy as someone who got a degree in environmental science with a focus on climate change uh but clearly the problem is that we have too many people on the planet and if we and we have to feed those people and it's just like would you agree that it's completely unscalable to uh feed the population your diet on hunted or grass-fed animals well i'd say two things one is uh, it's a bit of a straw man argument because no one is advocating for a worldwide diet. I mean, I certainly am not. And I, I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, as the world stands today, and as it will be for likely for the, the foreseeable future, I mean, most people don't get to eat by choice. I mean, most people in the world are not privileged to have the, the luxury to go. Yeah, to I'm, I'm out living in these places, by the way. I get to see the biggest poverty of poverty. I mean, I've been biking through Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador for the last year. I get to see how people eat, and I'm, I'm happy to share that. It's a pretty wild little case study I've done to see what the poorest people in the world are eating. Yeah, and I've been, and I've been to plenty of poor places myself, South America, Africa, you know, Afghanistan, and so – yeah, I mean, let, let's let's just sort of sort of distance ourselves from this worldwide diet because I think people are going to eat what they're able to eat in, for most cases. And so you and I, who were fortunate enough to live in a place where we have some degree of choice, I can say I can I can I can make a meat-based diet work for me merely because of the wealth of the country I'm fortunate enough to live in, you know, and many other people that are that are living in Western society have that capacity to do that. Now, having said that. Um, if we look at, you know, and I would encourage you to listen to our, our, our episode we did with Joel Salatin as it, as it will become released. We've already recorded that. Yeah, but I know he, about Joel Salatin. But when, he, when you look at his operation, and I would, I, would, I would assume you would agree with what he's doing as far as the way he's doing it, uh, his yield, you know, on the amount of animals he can have on his land is something like four, five, six, seven, eight hundred percent more than a conventionally raised animal, the way he's pasturing his animal. So he can significantly increase the yield. We still have a lot of land in the United States. And you've got to realize most of the land that we have in the United States and throughout the world is not suitable for crops. More of it is suitable for rangeland stuff where you can actually grow animals under. And the argument that you make about calories, while is accurate, calories do not define nutrition. I mean, we have to look at nutrition from things like leucine, like, like lysine, like essential amino acids and stuff like that. And those things are more abundant and more efficiently obtained in animal-based nutrition. And so Don Lehman did a nice right, study. You also get the whole package with animal-based foods. And, and here's where the conversation might get into, uh, interesting. And uh, you also have the package of animal-based foods, which increases your risk of heart disease and cancer, according to the best nutritional studies we have. 
you know, it's so hard on these types of podcasts to talk about this stuff because if we just pull study by study, you know, we can both prove that a plant-based diet is best to reduce those diseases. We can, we can prove that a low carbohydrate meat-based diet because we have studies to prove everything these days. It's very complex, but obviously from my perspective of what I have learned and researched is that sure, if there's some more bioavailability or certain nutrients that are higher in animal products and lower in plants, uh, assuming that with an adequate plant-based diet, which in my opinion is very easy as someone who travels the world on a bicycle, it's essentially, I'm the hardest person to be a vegan. I don't have a kitchen. I don't have a normal grocery store. I'm out there on my bicycle in some really harsh uh, conditions in rural areas. And I've never had one day where it's difficult for me to assimilate a healthy plant-based diet. And with the research that uh, I've done to inform my dietary choices, you don't have these things like heme iron and uh, dietary cholesterol and saturated fat, which of course we can, we, we just have such differing agreements. You know, I've listened to hours and hours of, of you guys talking and other uh, meat advocate and carnivore people. And it makes it very challenging to have these conversations because we both have such differing opinions. And, and I will be honest and say uh, that most of the studies, of course, are not comparing a vegan diet to a carnivore diet. They're comparing a vegan or plant diet to a diet of meat and carbohydrates, which you guys also would not recommend. So I honor that all the studies we have are not perfect, but you know, the, the mainstream consensus, again, from the American Heart Association, American Dietetics Association, Harvard School of Public Health, and on the cover of CNN on their homepage. I'm not a CNN fan, by the way, but the, the again, the mainstream uh, evidence we have from the smartest doctors in the world, even I heard you talking about Mark Hyman the other day, who has no vegan bias, is not a vegan, but advocates for a low meat, high plant-based diet because we have so many examples from uh, specific case studies and, uh, and also epidemiological studies of just uh, investigating and studying the rates of disease and the best longevity around the world. And the reason that all these mainstream organizations are advocating high plant diets is not because there's some conspiracy to get everyone sick and get on pills. There's tons of problems within the medical system of doctors not treating people with lifestyle medicine and making more money through pills. And that would be something that we both agree on. But, you know, I've been hearing recently just this cons total conspiracy theory that all these big mainstream institutions advocating for a high plant and high fiber diet is just because they're completely out of touch with the best uh, new nutritional information and they're out to get us. I mean, it's nonsense. I have a friend named Jackson Long who uh, just got his master's degree in applied nutrition. He did not go to a vegan program. He read the most mainstream, best nutritional textbooks that science has to offer. And he just launched a new podcast and he's one of my good friends. And he learned in that non-vegan biased program, everything that I'm saying, that a high plant, low meat, high fiber diet uh, is the way to go to increase you know, longevity and health. So even if uh, meat had certain nutrients that you maybe have to get a bit more calories from plants or in more nutrient-dense sources and take a B12 supplement and take an omega-3 supplement just as a safety precaution. You know, our bodies are able to convert uh, certain fats to get your uh, omega-3s and essential fatty acids, but really those are the two 
supplements as a safety protocol that I would say is smart on a plant-based diet, especially a plant-based diet when you're buying industrial foods that are not grown in the most richest organic soils. Um, so to me, when you don't get the, pass, the, the package of the high saturated fat, the animal protein, the dietary cholesterol, which the mainstream science has shown us for about a hundred years now increases your risk of disease, you know, you might as well go for the plants and take a few safety precautions and be really healthy. Like I have been without being very sick over the last seven years. And a lot of people thrive on this diet long-term. Yeah. Good point. I, you know, I would obviously disagree with a lot of what you said there just based on the health stuff, but you know, let's just, let's just agree to disagree. But, but I am, oh, yeah, but let's I, just, I am interested. Why do you disagree? Like what, what has well, led you towards, yeah. towards thinking uh, that, that this mainstream information is just completely out of touch? Yeah, uh, I'll just, well, you, want, you want to jump in, Zach? Yeah, or? just quick. And then you can add, Sean. Well, I mean, most of the mainstream information that we're, that we're referencing here are what you said, they're epidemiological associational studies. Like if you really dig into some of this stuff, and I would encourage folks to go listen to the discussion between uh, Bart K and um, Sean, who is the, the vegan doctor he was talking to for uh, uh, Garth Davis, Garth, Dark Garth Davis, where when they really dug into it and they looked at that stuff, they came up with the, the end of just, you know, well, we just don't know. And, you know, we're going to, go based on these associational epidemiological studies as our best mode or our best uh, piece of evidence. And I would just challenge people to look at that specifically and look at what else was going on within the context of that. Like what was the, what, where were the controls or lack thereof and what other pieces to the puzzle are put in there? Um, I mean, you can find people who are, who are following a vegan diet, but also doing everything else right, or someone following a meat-based diet, but also doing everything else right. So to actually just look at the nutrition in a lens or a, or a scope that's so narrow that that's the end-all be-all is a huge mistake, because I think there's just so many other components to that. And then a lot of these things also, they're being compared to the standard American diet, which what we said in the beginning is we, we agree are, is terrible. So what I see kind of happening is we kind of have this one side of the spectrum, which is vegan plant-based, very much a minority. Other side, which is kind of carnivore slash meat-based, very much a minority. And this large swath of people in the middle who are doing worse than both of those polar ends, in my opinion. And sure. at that point, then I think like what Sean was saying about your, your, your comment about everyone going meat-based or going carnivore uh, that's just not going to happen. Just like not everyone is going to go vegan. Um, so I don't, I think just trying to kind of parcel out the numbers within that lens is, is, is too unreasonable. Sure. Um, Sorry, there, there are obviously issues with purely looking at epidemiology because there's so many other factors from the pollutants that you're intaking if you live in a city or if you live out in a rural area, your spirituality, your connection to humans. There's so many more things beyond just food. Maggie, Kayate, come here. Hey, hey, come here. She's a good girl. She listens. Come here. Um, but, you know, I was talking to Sean the other day on Instagram and, you know, I asked him, show me a study or even a, a cited example of someone who reverses atherosclerosis and heart disease through a meat-based diet. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that your response was, we don't have the studies to do that yet. 
compared to the tens of thousands of anecdotal evidence, which I know the carnivore people love anecdotes because a lot of people go vegan and eat meat and feel way better. And uh, that's anecdotal information. But a plant-based diet, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is the only proven diet through mechanistic studies of actually doing it and anecdotal information to reverse and in most cases prevent heart disease, the number one killer in the world, where we don't have that evidence. And if it did work on a meat-based diet, don't you think that we would have figured that out by now? Whereas there's thousands and thousands of examples of in the actual real world, you get someone who's eating, again, a standard American diet. So I'm not saying that carnivore diet gives you heart disease. Of course, most people with heart disease who are eating meat are also eating sugary drinks and all this stuff. So it's not a, it's not a perfect study, but there is a correlation between people who eat a lot of meat and a lot of fried food and a high fat and a high fat diet who develop uh, heart disease and coronary artery disease. And when you put them on a low fat plant-based diet, it's over 90% of the time going to reverse uh, their heart disease within weeks. There's no information to say that a meat-based diet does that. And that is a very powerful piece of information to me. Jackson, I would challenge you to produce the 90% of the population reversing their, their heart disease within weeks, because I don't think there's literature that supports that. Now, you may be referring to Caldwell Esselstyn studies and then more and also more importantly Dean Ornish's work and Dean Ornish's work which was a total lifestyle package intervention which is reduction in smoking stress relief exercise no alcohol and no not a vegan diet but a low-fat diet that did include right Mediterranean dairy. style and so that is not a vegan diet that is a diet that still includes animal products and so to say that that the only diet is a vegan diet is factually no, no, I'm with you you're right no, no, sorry, my bad, you're right. We are talking about high plant, low meat diets, 100%. Okay. I'm not saying that a right. vegan so, diet. So we, we can sort, we should, dis, we should dismiss this vegan diet as the only diet that's been proven to reverse heart disease because it wasn't a vegan diet. It, well, it, was, it was an overall lifestyle change too. It was a lifestyle change. And, and, I would say, and I will say, I mean, if you look at Ivor Cummins' latest podcast, he talks about how people are actively reversing heart disease uh, as, as in the form of coronary calcification, which many people would concede is heart disease, on ketogenic and meat-based diets. And so there is evidence that that is starting to We are seeing All right, All right. and we better look into those things. And, I, and I agree. I do think it re requires more study. But I would say, uh, let me get your opinion on uh, things like seed oils, like uh, soybean oil, uh, corn oil. What do you feel about that? Because there, there are many people, plant-based advocates, that are advocates of using that. What are your thoughts on, on that in the diet? There's something that we will agree on based on the evidence and the science. Uh, I don't cook with oils, period. Uh, plant oils are not a health food. Uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, the person that we've been referencing, who has a plant-based bias in terms of the research he's done, is one of the biggest advocates saying, if you eat plant oils, which do have saturated fat, even coconut oil having lots of saturated fat, and you have no animal saturated fat in the diet, you can still develop heart disease from eating a high 
oil diet. So I'm not afraid of oil in that if I go out to a restaurant, which is rare, or some people cook some good plant-based food for me, I will eat the oil, but I don't purchase oil. I don't cook with it. Uh, I believe in a whole food diet and a, you know, I'm not 100% whole food. I still enjoy pasta and I enjoy bread, but the bulk of my diet is rice, beans, fruits, potatoes, whole grains, and vegetables. And there's no good information out there saying that eat a bunch of plant oils and that's going to be healthy for you. I would also say that animal fat oil sources like butter, which is essentially animal oil, it's just the carbohydrates and protein removed and the concentrated fat from that food product is even more of a terrible food for you. Uh, but I believe oils in general are not a healthy thing to eat because I advocate so are you, can you say that last sentence a little bit again, Jackson? You broke up a little bit there. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was just saying that if you compare butter to, uh, to uh, a, a plant oil, I would recommend eating the animal-based dietary cholesterol, which if you ask the best cardiologist in the world, will say increase your risk of heart disease. Not saying they're right. It's just what the mainstream says. Uh, so I don't recommend eating oils, period. Uh, and you can eat it once in a while. It's probably not going to kill you, but I don't. But yeah, those are not health foods in any way, plant oils. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly we would agree there. Now, um, what, what about, you know, when we look at the development of cardiovascular disease, and particularly atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you know, we know that cholesterol is a essential component of that. But cholesterol in itself needs other things to occur. You have to have vascular endothelial damage. You know, there's some people that will argue that hyperinsulinemia is also a, uh, a necessary component, perhaps. Um, would you concede that people that do not have vascular information, that do not have high levels of insulin, are at decreased risk of cardiovascular disease across the board, all other factors being considered equal? I, you know, while I've read Caldwell Esselstyn's book, How to Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, and I've listened to hundreds of hours of uh, lectures and information on that over the past seven years, which has in informed the things that I advocate for now, I am able and uneducated to answer that question. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I, I will, I will yeah. say that I think there's, there's pretty good evidence that, that indicates but there, there are a lot of plant-based advocates who probably do have that. And I'm sure if you asked that to Joel Kahn and Garth Davis, they would have an answer for you. I'm not saying it's a hole within the plant-based diet. It's just not something as a bicycle traveling YouTuber. Who's yeah. We're losing your, your signals cutting out again. Sorry, Jackson. Um, but what I will say, and we've had, Sorry, Joel, best. yeah, we've had Joel Kahn on the show and he, he did, would concede and did concede that, you know, we have to look at multiple factors that are, that are, that are associated with heart disease. And so when we get, right, well, there you go. whatever Joel Kahn says, I pretty much would, would agree as he is one of the persons that informs my nutritional ideology, not the only one, but definitely yeah, one sure. of them. Okay. So. Um, I think one of the problems, you know, just in general with regardless, we get very reductionist and it becomes it's all about LDL cholesterol or it's all about this particular factor or this, this ethical belief. And I think, you know, or, or it's all about, you know, rainforest in Brazil. And, and, and we have to realize that things are much more complicated and more nuanced than uh, a simple five second slogan is. And I will commend veganism. They've been very good at getting their message out. 
They're very good at an emotional plea. They're very good at uh, propagandizing the, the movement there, and it has influenced a lot of people. And I think, I think it's important to say to tell both sides because if you've got a you know a, you know whatever an eighteen year old kid and he wants to figure out how to eat, I think it's important that both sides of the story are out there. And you know, I, I think there's a lot of you know, do you believe that humans are strict herbivores, that we, that we evolved to be herbivores? Is that something you believe? No, and, and I don't think any vegan who has an education would say we're herbivores. If anything, we're frugivores coming from our primate uh, eating ancestry. But of course, we have eaten meat in the uh, relative past. Uh, depending on our climate situation of how cold it gets, animal foods are a much more dense source of calories. So of course humans can eat meat and they don't die immediately. So no, we're not herbivores. We are clearly omnivores. There's people who thrive until very, very old age on high plant diets. And there's people who thrive to very, very old age on high meat diets. It's not about being binary like that. It's about looking at the big picture and looking at our anatomy, looking at where we came from. Also looking at simple things like, you know, when my dog Maggie or a cat or a, more on the carnivore side, sees a, uh, and I'm not saying this is all scientific evidence to drop the bomb that that meat is unnatural. You know, of course we've been eating meat and there are nutrients in meat that we can assimilate and build up our body. Um, but if you just want to kind of look at the basics of who are we as human beings, there is a reason why carnivores don't see color for the most part because they're not interested in looking for colorful berries and colorful plants. There's a reason that carnivorous animals want to dig into the asshole and the guts of a recently dead animal and that's a beautiful experience for them. All of those things are terrible to the to all humans. Like you do not want to stick your head in the middle of a rotting gut flesh animal, whereas carnivores love that. And we have tons of receptors on our taste buds that attract us to carbohydrates. There's a reason that if you give a cat a banana, they're not interested. And human beings love carbohydrates. Now, I'm not saying that just because we love something, it means it's good for us. But if we were mainly supposed to be carnivores, don't you think we would have evolved at this point to be really attracted to the uh, raw blood, flesh, poop, all those smells that true carniv carnivorous animals love. But instead, we, we love carbohydrates and we see plants and we, you know, we mimic plant eaters uh, in, a, in a lot of ways with a larger intestinal tract than carnivores and things like that. So I don't think we're herbivores. We're clearly not ruminant animals. We're not meant to eat grass. I believe we, uh, like the healthiest uh, human foods right now, are lots of whole fruits and vegetables and then starches like potatoes and rice and uh, seeds in order to be very healthy, have great energy and prevent uh, chronic diseases. And that's how I've been eating and living and thriving as an athlete from when I was bodybuilding, which you can see on my YouTube channel, getting up to about 180 pounds versus being an ultra runner or not ultra runner, hope one day, but uh, more endurance athlete going down to 150 pounds. You know, I've been able to manipulate my body without protein powders, without steroids and without uh, BCAAs or any sort of those supplements in order to get 
very large muscle mass, which again, you can see on my uh, YouTube channel back in the days when I was in college as a vegan, eating lots of fruit and vegetables and weightlifting consistently, or I can manipulate my body in a short amount of time to thrive off of, uh, you know, uh, endurance sports. And I'm not a super athlete. Zach will know these numbers, but after like a year of training, I ran a 90 minute half marathon at the Berkeley half marathon. I've obviously biked the last 11,000 miles with a 100 pound bicycle eating plants and I'm thriving. Uh, but yeah, that's what I think about, uh, if, if we're herbivores or not, I think it makes a lot of sense that high meat diets uh, we're not attracted to it naturally. They also produce disease and that eating a high plant diet is uh, optimal for human health. Yeah. So, I mean, I would assume you would agree that, that if we want to make sort of some sort of evolutionary army, mean, humans were primates. We're primates. I mean, we're classified as primates and certainly we probably evolved from animals that were eating fruit in trees 20 million years ago, 25 million years ago. And so we had developed color vision and then, and then as climate change, we had different sort of foods available to us. And then we, we sort of evolved into a more meat-based diet. And so we already had this color vision in place. Why would we lose that color vision? Would there be an evolutionary advantage for primates to lose color vision suddenly? I don't, I don't think that argument sort of makes sense. So certainly I would agree that there's probably some fruit, eat some fruit eaten and still eaten and probably eaten the whole time in the human diet. Now, the fact that, you know, we're talking about our humans attracted to feces and the acid. Well, I mean, if we look at gorillas and other, other primates, they, they engage in coprophagia where they eat their own feces because they, they have a hard time extracting all the nutrition. And so, I mean, this, that, that sort of gets kind of silly to me. And, and to say that right, said, but they also don't have grocery stores where they're able to eat a well, I mean, I didn't have. I mean, I would. I would imagine the average Cro-Magnon didn't have a grocery store either. So, I mean, the grocery store argument has no relevance if we're talking about an evolutionary argument. So, these animals. Well, right. If we're talking about evolutionary arguments, no, but we don't live in that world. Like, of course, it makes sense in the. Oh, sorry. Were you Were you trying to get a? Well, I was just saying out? that. I mean, you know, if if we're going to say that, you know, uh, humans don't aren't attracted to eating meat. Uh, a raw meat there. I mean, there are people all over the world that eat raw meat still. I mean, and, and it's not at all. And there, there are, there are all kinds of uh, in, indigenous people that will eat animals right off the carpet. Of course. And yeah. how's their longevity? Let's look at the biggest well, case study well, of well, carnivorous well, people like the Inuits. They have some of the worst longevity in the world. No, no they don't. They don't have the worst longevity in the world. They live to, they live to about the same age that everybody else did when they were, when they were first encountered in the 1800s. When we look at census data, they lived mid forties, which was generally the average population in the world. Population health, uh, you know, longevity studies, you know, longevity didn't, didn't occur until we had mass sanitation improvements, access to clean water, till we had, uh, you know, access to health care. That's, yes, that sure. that's not just food, that's for sure. And let's look at what the Inuit do. I mean, they smoke. When do they start? The, the average Inuit person starts smoking at age eight. They start, start smoking cigarettes at age eight and nine, and something like 70% of their population smokes. Right. If you want to talk about longevity, and they're poor, they're subsistence. Name me a subsistence poor society that lives long. It just doesn't typically happen. If you if you don't have food security, you're not going to live long. So if we want to look at, you know, we, we can we can we can point to the population of Hong Kong, which you know lives longer than anyone else on the planet right now, and they eat more meat than anyone else on the planet right now. So if we if we want to do right. these populations, that's been an interesting new. Yeah, yeah so that that's. That, that, 
that has been an interesting new develop. I see people pointing out these uh, Hong Kong studies and we need to look into that for sure because a lot of plant-based people say, hey, look at the blue zones, the best study, epidemiological study showing people with the best longevity. And they recommend if you look at their website, eating a 95% of your calorie from plant diet. But of course, if there's new, better information of people showing that if you eat very few plants and a lot of meat, that that's actually better than uh, the blue zone studies, which recommend a plant-based diet, I'm open to looking into that. Let's do it. I think if we, I don't know why we necessarily revere the blue zone studies as the best epidemiologic data we have. I mean, that's a study which has been highly criticized. And, you know, like if we look at the, you know, the Okinawan population, which many vegans like to point out, one, it wasn't a vegan diet for sure. I mean, they still ate animal products, but also. High sweet potato diet. What's that? High sweet potato diet high sweet potato yeah, diet. But let's look about when that data was acquired. That, that data that was acquired uh, for that particular quote unquote blue zone in Okinawa was, was acquired in 1949. This is right after World War II when the United States decimated the island of Okinawa and we took their pig population from 130,000 pigs down to something like 7,000 pigs. And so they were living on a subsistence starvation diet when that data was acquired. And by the mid-1950s, that pig population had recovered largely through the efforts of people like Hawaiians that were previous Okinawan people that, that, that reintegrated pigs back into that population. Uh, and so they eat a high, you know, a high pork, pork diet. They eat lots of seafood. They're an island. To think that these people aren't eating fish is bizarre to think that they would just subsist on sweet potatoes. And so that data is highly skewed based on the time period it was, it was from. So, I mean, and there's a lot of people that will argue that, you know, Sardinia and, and people that live in, uh, you know, uh, Costa Rica, the other blue zones, they eat plenty of meat. I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of a misrepresentation what these people eat. So I, I don't know that that blue zone data is necessarily that reliable. And I, I think that even the, uh, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, they're, they're vegetarian, not vegan. Uh, there are a few vegans in there, and the ones that lived the longest, even in the Seventh-day Seventh Adventist data, were the ones that added fish to their diet. And so we have to say that, you know, veganism is not the best diet. And you can argue that, you know, maybe it's a more plant-based, less meat-based diet is. But to make the argument that, that veganism is the best diet. Well, we, we don't have to make that argument because one of the stances I've had this entire conversation is if, if we want to purely talk about health, I'm not advocating for a vegan diet. I'm advocating for a high plant and low meat diet because I'm evidence-based. And, 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 and I would agree, we do not have information to show that eating a vegan diet. You also point out that, that the most ethical diet also would be a, you know, uh, a meat-based diet where you use uh, grass-finished animals. And so we've got... Well, uh, yeah, again, it's more nuanced. You would have to be like buying a cow or two per year and taking that one life. You know, you can't be just buying... Like, you know, if you're eating chicken or fish, for instance, from an ethical standpoint, you know, the vegan philosophy is each sentient being is just a being that deserves to not be killed or born into a torturous situation if we don't need to kill that animal for health. And of course, my stance would be we don't need to eat meat, thus we shouldn't. Uh, you, you would think differently. Uh, which is a more fringe ideology that might be proven correct, but has not been proven yet in the mainstream science. And I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just you are on the fringes for now versus the smartest people studying these things. Uh, and science changes, so it could change, but just throwing that out there. Uh, and I will say that contributing to the industrial food system 
uh, is the worst thing you can do ethically and sustainably, meaning you could go out and hunt animals, which would be the most ethical and environmental way to eat meat. But I will also say like after this trip, uh, I 100% my intention is to move to this part of the world and have a vegan fruit farm. I have spent over a hundred days over the last two years working on organic plant farms. Some of them also had chickens and goats as well, but obviously I work in, in the fruit, vegetable growing side of things. I've spent over a hundred days uh, living on farms that do not use pesticides. It's the Kern family farm in Central California, uh, Rancho Viejo in Northern Baja, California, and a woman's kind of hobby fruit farm. There's not a name for the farm, but down in Southern Baja, California. And I have subsisted on those farms eating the mangoes, peaches, nectarines, microgreens in the greenhouse, beets, onions, garlic, uh, potatoes, quinoa, legumes, which I've seen and I've actually grown from start to finish these products. And my full intention is to live off of my own land, eating the healthiest plant-based foods without shooting birds in the fields and without killing tons of mice. Of course, there are certain organic plant uh, farms that do kill uh, natural wild pests coming in. And that's a part of of course, if you're trying to grow food, there's going to be wild animals that come in and want to eat your food. But as someone who's spent over 100 days working on farms over the last few years, I've also seen uh, being able to grow an abundance of plants in order to feed yourself off of the foods that I love to eat and I think are the healthiest foods without killing tons of animals. So yes, eating wild uh, animals or eating a grass-fed animal that you butcher and put in your freezer to last you months and months, that is a very ethical and environmental way to eat, I will agree. And you can also subsist very well off of doing that same kind of thing in the perfect situation, but growing plants. So it's not the only way to eat super environmentally is to eat animals that are wild. You can do it with plants, and I fully intend to do that based on my experience my firsthand experience. So you would agree that uh, things like the Beyond Meat Burger, the Impossible Burger, I mean, which I think is just more processed food garbage, you, you would not recommend people eat that. Is that fair to say? No, I would recommend eating those things because the people who are eating those things are like, you know, they just introduced it to Carl's Jr. and Del Taco. So when you go into Carl's Jr., you have a choice to eat a piece of meat that's probably the lowest quality meat possible, uh, grew up in a factory farm, probably pumped with antibiotics and hormones, uh, maybe even cooked in seed oils. I don't know about that, but clearly the, the least shining example of clean or healthy meat is a factory farm cheeseburger. So you are a Carl's Jr. fast food cheeseburger. So when you take that you know, sandwiched between a bun with some lettuce and tomato versus a burger made out of peas, rice, lentils, and vegetables and seed oil, I would say from a sustainability, 
and ethical perspective, again, considering the amount of wildlife that has to be displaced, water use, pesticides used in order to grow those plants, uh, this coming back to what we talked about in the beginning, in order to feed those factory farmed animals, that when you put those two products together, is a Beyond Burger the shining example of a healthy vegan food? No, I believe in eating mainly whole foods. But when you put those two things together, the Beyond Meat Burger does not have the uh, saturated animal fat, it does not have the dietary cholesterol, it does not have the IGF-1, it has more fiber, and all of those things in the mainstream nutritional research that I have researched are better things to eat than a Carl's Jr. beef burger. So would you recommend buying it in the grocery store then? I would recommend if you want to be vegan and you want to be the most sustainable, ethical, and healthy, this is what your diet should look like. You should uh, go to a farmer's market. Hopefully you live in a place like California where you have year-round farmer's markets. If you don't, that's another discussion. But if we're talking about gold standard vegan diet, what I would recommend is eating from a farmer's market. Uh, I've lived in Los Angeles and in Berkeley, California. You can find sweet potatoes, russet potatoes, you can even find rice grown locally in California. That can subsist and uh, that can be a lot of your main calories and avocados and things like almonds and walnuts, which you can also get from organic sources in places like California. Uh, so local, more high calorie uh, plant foods like that, in addition to as many, uh, you know, local fruits and vegetables as you can get. And if you want to be vegan to avoid animal products and you want to eat things like fruits and bananas that are imported from Ecuador, you have to consider uh, what the carbon footprint of that is in order to take a banana, put it on a boat, you know, drive, uh, ride it over to the United States and drive it to your grocery store, thinking about the animals that probably were killed in that transportation process and also the wildlife that were killed on those fruit farms. Again, if you compare it to an animal product at the grocery store, I believe that even the imported fruits have a less carbon impact because they're not producing methane, which is a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2, they're producing oxygen. So look, do we know exactly what is more sustainable, a banana from Ecuador versus a uh, animal product from a factory farm, which is how most or a large industrial animal farm operation, which is how most people eat meat. You know, we don't know for a hundred percent fact when you put those two things together, what's better, but I would recommend not eating processed foods because a Beyond Meat burger that's a processed food is not going to be as healthy and it's also not going to be as sustainable because it's sourced from tons of different farms all coming together. I believe in eating rice, beans, potatoes, lentils, fruits and vegetables as local as you can get. And if it's not local, try to get it organic. And kind of that is how I would summarize the healthiest vegan diet, of course, with a B12 supplement, which is the only so, supplement that I take. So Jackson, I want to just jump in here real quick, because I think like there's a lot that we can pull out of what you just said. And I think the things that, that caught my interest the most are just, you know, local, right? Like when you can eat local, regardless, like what we were talking about before, whether you're going to your local farmer and buying a cow and you're hunting and trying to be as ethical as you possibly can through a meat-based diet, or if you're going plant-based and you're going to go to the farmer's market, try to, you know, get you to your local CSA and that sort of stuff and, and try to consume responsibly. You know, when I look at both sides of that 
from either the meat-based or the plant-based side, there's so much commonality in that message. I would actually venture to say the actual message is identical. It's just the products are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. I agree, yeah. And you know, one thing I hope that comes from maybe this most recent movement with the carnivore meat-based movement and then the already in place kind of vegan plant-based movement would be that we could join forces, so to speak, and create that power lobbying interest to go lifestyle based local nutrition based because that's sort of you know what I see happening here in the United States especially is we've got an endless growth model and that's certainly gone into the food manufacturing and food consumption side of things we want to get things as cheap as we possibly can as efficient as we possibly can at all costs and I think it's fair to say that some of the costs related to that are environmental costs so the interesting thing about an endless growth model is the word end there's probably an end to that where things fall apart. So for me, it's like we almost need to take a step back because we weren't always like that. We didn't always have that technology. We didn't always have the ability to be buying things from across the globe. And I think looking at that as a 100% a, a win that we, I mean, there's benefits for us being able to have contact with the other side of the world via communication and that sort of stuff. We said this in other podcasts before. It's the reason we're talking today. So there's two sides to that coin though. And I think some areas are worth exploring kind of going back to our roots. And I think local food consumption is one of those. And when I look at it like that, that's a structural problem. That's an infrastructure problem. That's not necessarily like I'm too poor to eat local. That's just because of in the current system, that's what makes it out to be. You're a hundred percent correct. I agree with everything that you just said. Local is king, even over dietary, uh, you know, sides of the tribe. Like local is always king. That is going to be what's best for the planet. The globalized food system is what is destroying this planet even more, in my opinion, than just eating animals. Because as I've said, you can eat animals if we have a systematic change where our uh, farm bill and taxpayer money actually goes to small farms who are trying to provide more local calories and nutrition to their communities. I'm 100% with you on that. And that is a, that is a space uh, in the Venn diagram where the two of us can, can come together for sure. Yeah, so what you're saying is what we need to do is we need to do a local food consumption bike across America with you and I together. Hey, that would be badass. It's going to take me about a year and a half to get back to the United States to finish my trip. But uh, if I'm not sick of pedaling by then, I would definitely consider it. <laughs> well, it gives me a year and a half to get used to riding a bike. <laughs> hey. yeah, I don't, Sean, Sean, I don't think the rowing machine will go across the United States, unfortunately. But oh, yeah, um, a rower. I, I wonder, you know, I just, I just want to just sort of more nuance on this stuff when we talk about methane and being more potent as a greenhouse gas. And certainly, if we look at global warming potential, it's about 25x of what CO2 is. But then if we look at time and residence in the atmosphere, we see that methane is up in the atmosphere about 10 years, whereas carbon dioxide That's right. stays in the atmosphere about a thousand years, maybe two thousand right. years. And so even the even the, the foremost climate scientists will say it's really the fossil fuels, it's not the methane from the cows. Yeah. The real so there's there's two things with that. You could make that argument, but I studied this a lot in my environmental science degree. You could also make the other argument that in these dire times that we're currently in of the uh, of the environment rising in average temperature, which is raising sea levels, displacing wildlife, displacing coastal communities, um, 
and uh, also affecting our agricultural models, which are all going to result in uh, a lot of death and destruction and the ocean dead zoning like out of the Mississippi Delta from all those pesticides from those uh, plant farms, again, many of which are being grown for animals, but that are creating dead zones in our in our water. Um, you could also make the argument that because methane is we're able is doesn't have as long of a life cycle in the atmosphere that we're kind of screwed in terms of CO2. We've put that CO2 in the atmosphere. There's kind of nothing that we can do. But if we reduce the main methane emitters, which is from animal-based agriculture, that can actually have a more immediate impact on slowing down the impacts of uh, global greenhouse gas emissions and, sea and uh, temperature rise. So I kind of see your perspective, but I also see that we should lower methane quicker and the way to do that is to produce less animals into the world which is what is being done because people uh, uh demand so much meat if we look at you know if you know, because there's been a number of studies that have actually looked at methane emissions and, and what actually accumulates in the atmosphere and nasa through their you know has done some of the analysis looking at the different isotopes of methane and they can see that the accumulation of methane that's actually in the atmosphere that has occurred over the last couple of decades is not coming from animals. It's coming from things like natural gas leaks from, from the, you know, harvesting of natural gas. We're seeing a, there's a large, for whatever reason, a big vent coming out of Africa that is, that is uh, from some wetlands in Africa. And so we're seeing that the, the methane that's actually currently accumulating in the atmosphere over the last 30 or 40 years is not associated with the methane that's producing by cows. And in fact, the cattle population has been, relatively stable over over the last you know 30 40 years and in fact in the united states we now have uh where well, we used to have about 130 million cows in the 70s we now have 90 million cows and so we've actually decreased uh, output you know at least in right. the united so states where globally, you live, people uh, are eating more globally. meat than they than they used to around the world because of fast food and those types of things well i mean you, you can you can go to you can go to india and make the case that one of the largest cattle herds in the world uh the second largest cattle herd in the world needs to be called and you're going to piss off a lot of hindus so i mean you've got to you know you've got to figure out what, what do you no, mean? that's yeah. not the problem look the the we're not worrying about that. We're trying to get, wait, you know. Wait a minute. There's 200 million cattle in India. We have 90 and 90 million in the United States. And you're going to say the cows in India don't make methane? When actually they probably produce, they actually do produce more methane because they're not being fed corn. Corn is going to produce more <laughs> methane, as I'm sure you're aware, less methane, as, you, as I'm sure you're aware. Yes, yes. grass-fed animals produce more methane than grain-fed. And these, and these animals that are roaming around India and Africa in these uncontrolled, uh, you know, very poor uh, uh, systems where, where they, they have poor feed, the animals are sick, they're infected with parasites, they're eating, you know, junk off the street, you know, they're, they're, eat, they're producing a lot of methane. They're producing probably the majority of the methane if we're going to talk about where we, where we need to make our improvements there. And so I think we, we have to say that we've got a system in the United States which has demonstrably decrease their water usage they've demonstrably decreased their methane output they've demonstrably decreased their land usage and we're going to rail against that that particular you know issue when there, when there's other issues if we want to, if we want to part, point to cattle uh then we have to look at it from a world standpoint because as you point out global greenhouse gas issues are a global problem and again it's regional type of stuff and so as you rightly point out the dead zones from pesticide runoff 
Uh, plant agriculture does that too, and grain is, right. not, is not the only uh, crops that are grown. Remember, all the all the almonds, you know, ninety percent of the uh, the nuts produced in, in the world are grown in California, that's right. and we're using tremendous amounts of water to produce those almonds. Right. Uh, and that's also that. a better argument for the almonds, just because it, almonds do use so much water in California. It's not just for producing almonds to the local community. It's actually providing, as you said, 90% of those almonds. But, you know, if we want to talk about water use, and we can argue semantics about exact numbers, but the information that I've learned is it takes about 600 gallons of water to produce a quarter pound of factory farm beef, again, because of all those plant inputs that are going into it, plus the amount of water that that animal needs to drink for its lifetime versus growing an equal amount of plant calories like potatoes will take about 50 gallons of water. I mean, even if I'm off by 20%, uh, and I'm not saying I am, but to give you guys the benefit of the doubt, you know, it's always going to be more resource efficient and water efficient and land efficient to eat lower on the food chain than to eat higher on the food chain. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. If we look at water usage, and these numbers are very interesting because when people talk about water usage, they, they fail to talk about blue water versus green water versus gray water. And if we look at, you know, livestock water, something like 90% of it, and again, this is a little bit region specific, but 90% of that is just rainwater. And that rainwater, which, which goes into the calculation, if rain falls on a field, they count every drop of that water as being used by the animal. That rain would have fallen regardless if the animals were there or not. So it's not really an... Really, you guys got to look up the amount of water that is taken out of the Ogallala Aquifer, which is the largest aquifer in the United States that is going directly to crop agriculture and to animal agriculture. And again, most of crop agriculture in the United States is for animal agriculture. And we are pumping a a lot of that water, not just through the rain, but from a water source that is not infinitely reproducing and is depleting. And to reduce our water usage by eating more plants and not patronizing these animal agriculture operations is definitely the best thing for water efficiency. I, I think though, like when we start talking about water efficiency and stuff like that, that's less of a animal versus plant argument. I think you can make that argument, but I think you're not necessarily getting all the way to the root or to the bedrock of the issue. I, when we had Joel Salatin and uh, Alan Savory on the podcast, you know, they talked about the difference between water retention in an area or desertification when we do these more industrialized plants and animal agricultural processes versus a more holistic way. And the thing that Joel Salinson said that I was very interested in that I hadn't realized was when you have the holistic management process in place, the ruminants turn 
from a water, uh, like a water displacer to a, like a water sink. So it actually helps keep the water in the spot where it was intended to be from the rainfall. It doesn't just run off because these cows are holding on to so much of it and then gradually releasing it throughout the course of their life. And that's why it works so holistically. And, and you know, when I talk about the holistic stuff with, with savory and uh, salatin, I'm, I'm not intending to use that as like a pro meat argument as much as I am a, a, a management process in which we could feed vegans and carnivores together because when you look at the stacking process there, you know, that's good for the plant growth too. You know, we're regenerating the soil and creating that, that massive increase in yield that Sean talked about that we see on uh, polyphase farm where they turned what was almost unusable or the most unusable land in the area into the by far the most productive is so worth looking into because we, we take so many of these numbers and say, hey, our production output given our current state is this and we can't sustain a population with that. But that's looking at what we currently have, which is land that has been raped for decades and decades and decades. You know, if we get these processes like polyface farm back in, also in our product, we, we have no clue how productive our land could actually be from both an animal egg and a plant egg side of things. For sure. And I, I totally agree. That's where we need to move towards. I love that idea of figuring out the most sustainable uh, ways to feed people of both nutritional ideologies. I think that's a nice way to put it. But again, what I will keep coming back to is I haven't seen good statistics to show that if we want to do that kind of, uh, well, you know, Sean's saying that they're even more productive than factory farming. So maybe I need to look more into it as well. But what I see out here in Central America, for instance, is uh, land that has way too many animals grazing on it and there's no more grass and uh, there's a lot of desertification going on and if we are going to do it in that regenerative way again because of how much more densely you can grow plants on a on a lot of arable land to grow plants versus animals i just don't see the space where we can provide so much cheap grass-fed meat in these regenerative ways to to supply the the model that we currently have and i'm not saying that you support the model of fast food and cheap meat and all that stuff but you're right we need even more importantly than nitpicking we need systematic change of farmers and of the government and farm bill putting in money and efforts into localizing our food system whether that's regenerative regenerative animal-based farms or organic plant farms you know that is a nice little middle that we can also meet towards that needs to be a systematic change versus the completely corrupt farm system we currently have where these mega uh, grain corporations are just making money off of feeding human beings absolute crap. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on the fact that we have large corporations and, and they're always going to put profits ahead of people. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's just the, that's just the, you know, that's just a human way. I mean, Absolutely. people that want to make, you know, you know, better their place in the world on the back of other people, it's going to happen. And so we have that in, you know, in the meat industry with, you know, uh, companies like Cargill and Tyson Foods. And we have that in, in, in the non-meat industry like Nestle and Nabisco and PepsiCo and Coca-Cola and all these things. So we've got these companies that are just trying to centralize the food, make it cheap, make it profitable. They don't really care about human health. You know, it's, it's, if you get Absolutely. enough calories and your belly's full, shut up and don't complain. It doesn't matter if you get autoimmune diseases or cancer or, 
your heart disease when you're 50 or 60 or 70, whatever, it doesn't really matter to these people. And so um, would you agree that, uh, you know, we can't have plant agriculture without animals? I mean, it just, I mean, those things are symbiotic. They need to be together. And so we have to figure out a way to uh, do this. And I think some of these sustainable regenerative agricultural techniques, whether it's plant or animal, have to, have to, have to come together in a symbiotic fashion. And would you also concede that there are people, and, and, and we can debate on the, on the actual uh, percentage, but there are people that do not thrive on a solely plant-based diet. We, I mean, we see it all the time. People, for whatever reasons, maybe they're, they're not smart enough to figure it out. Maybe they don't have the resources to do it correctly. But there are people, and particularly, you know, if, if you were to go to Nicaragua, uh, well, I mean, you know, there are probably people that would not do well on a, on a plant-based diet throughout the world because they just don't have the reason. They don't have the, they don't have the ability to import food from around the world 365 days a year like we do in Western society where, you know, 40% of our food ends up in a landfill and the majority of it being fruits and right. vegetables and baked goods. And so and 50% of the fruit that's imported in the United States comes from overseas. So, so knowing that not everybody can be on a plant-based diet, how do you, how do you propose going yeah, forward? So, so the first thing about uh, having animals in the system of growing plants and those two things being connected, uh, sure, there are, many reasons to say that you need animal manures and things like that. Um, it's not a vegan debunker because even if you did need some animal inputs in order to grow the best plants, which, you know, I've watched many documentaries on veganic farming. I have lived on farms where we compost a lot of plant debris and then use worm composting, which is totally vegan in my opinion. You're not breeding animals into existence. You're not confining animals. It's animals, uh, worms breaking down the compost. I have seen firsthand examples of small organic plant farms growing fruits and vegetables without animal manure inputs, just wild animals pooping and worm composting to produce very rich nutrient dense plants. And if we're all talking about more localized, smaller food systems, I see that as a good example of why you don't need to breed tons and tons of animals in the way that we currently are in order to grow plants. But I see what you're saying, that those two things are also connected uh, for nutrient dense soils. Um, and then let's talk, yeah, about what is the diet of people like here in Nicaragua and Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador, which I have been firsthand cycling through the smallest, poorest villages that anyone traveling by plane or bus would never go to, but I'm forced to go because I'm literally biking through every single one of them on my bicycle. And I haven't met any vegans. I'm talking, I've been biking for a year and a half. I have not run into an accidental vegan in these small villages. Now that is because there's not the access to information. What there is access to is the cheapest foods in these communities are rice, beans, potatoes, lentils, and an abundance of fruit that is dripping off of the wild and cultivated trees in these communities to the point where I go days sometimes on my bicycle, not even buying fruit, but eating 
10, 20 mangoes a day while cycling 40 miles, eating fruit that is literally dripping off of the trees in these communities. And you can look at my Instagram and you can look at my YouTube channel for me to actually show at the abundance of fruits that are grown uh, in these communities. And in the, in the homes of locals that I actually do stay with firsthand, when I say that I haven't run into any vegans, their diet is 90 something percent plant-based. I have lived with families on this trip, most recently in Honduras for a few days in a row, people I didn't even meet through the internet, but just ran into. And because animal products are more expensive, even down here, you know, you talk about how these communities of poor people who don't have access to imported food, I don't know if you've been down here recently, and I've biked toward through Thailand, Malaysia, United States, Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, a little bit in Europe, most of the world, and the cheapest foods locally grown are always plants. And the vast majority of the diet of these people who don't even know what veganism is, because the cheapest foods are rice, potatoes, beans, and corn, and local fruits, that is the main diet of the people that I am living with in their home, watching them eat three meals a day. And then usually in more of a celebratory fashion, they will go outside and kill a chicken that's just roaming around their yard or collect their eggs once a day. And those are the animal products that people are eating, or they will slaughter a pig or a goat for a wedding and eat that as a community. And that is a very healthy and sustainable diet, in my opinion. Uh, people around the world, you know, there's this total illusion that veganism is this uh, elitist type of diet. The cheapest calories and the most high fiber, and in my opinion, good nutrition foods are always plants around the whole world. In Asia, in North America, in Central America, people are eating fruits, rice, beans, and you know wheat or corn products not because they believe in veganism not because they know anything about health and nutrition but because that's actually the staple diet of how the poorest people eat so to say that here in nicaragua it would be mean to say to the locals you need to eat a plant-based diet because and, and that's unethical because they don't have as much money and resources the way to reduce your food bill per week definitely by any other diet is to eat the local rice, beans, potatoes, and fruit, and that's how I eat, and I eat ridiculously cheaply, and the most expensive foods are meat, dairy, period. Why do you think it is that these people just don't elect to not eat the animals? Why, why don't they, if they've got all this abundance of, of plant material and rich fruit, why don't they just stop eating animals? Why, why don't they do that? It's why, all education. And these people are obese and a lot of them are unhealthy. I mean, traveling through Mexico, uh, they have more obesity than the United States now. Mexico is the number one obese country. I mean, it's, and this isn't only a vegan versus meat conversation. Number one, it truly is cultural. I mean, to say to someone that they're not going to eat chicken and beef and chicharrones and carne asada. It's like culturally like a shameful thing to even think about of eating only mangoes, rice, and beans and plants, which the best nutritional science we have say is a very healthy way to eat. Again, not vegan, but plant-based, lowering your animal product consumption. The education is not here. It's incredible. I mean, I go through places where people don't even have cell phones. People don't have access to internet. They're doing what they've always been doing, which is eating fruits, fruits rice, and beans, and then eating uh, meat very 
rarely, but what has contributed to these obesity epidemics and these health crises in this part of the world is that because of our screwed up industrial food system, every single village now has a little store, multiple stores, where people are drinking a liter of Coca-Cola a day and they're eating fried meats in uh, plant oil, and they're eating this garbage. I mean, it boggles my mind. I bike through these villages where there's over a thousand wild ripe mangoes on the ground, and these people are drinking Coca-Colas and hot dogs. I'm not kidding. It's crazy. It's, it's, there is a huge disconnect between uh, diet having any relation to your health and I, I don't mean to belittle these people. They're amazing, generous people. I love this part of the world so much. I've become fluent in Spanish and I want to even live here, but they know nothing about nutrition. It's, it's totally devastating. And they're choosing mainly all of the wrong choices uh, in terms of eating high processed food because with this introduction of French fries and hot dog fast food places, which even are in these small towns that I go through, um, people associate, ooh, I can eat some fast food, which is really palatable and full of oil and processed meats, which, you know, the CDC says processed meats are equal to cigarettes, cigarettes in terms of being a carcinogen. Uh, they just associate it with signs of growth and signs of development and are not making the smartest food choices because culturally it's just not as normal to eat uh, a high plant diet, I guess, and uh, because there's so much access to processed foods. And I wanna get into the why, like do I think everyone can be vegan? Because that was a part of the question that you asked me. And we can kind of link that into this whole ex-vegan movement, uh, which by the way, most of the ex-vegans, which I'm sure you've made videos about from Ravana to Elise of Raw Alignment. You know, I've known Elise since 2014. We're good personal friends, still are friends. Um, and do I think that a plant-based diet health-wise can be for everybody? I think that done correctly, uh, and which is not very complicated, you don't need access to superfoods and goji berries and a whole foods market. You know, I am traveling in the most basic places where I've said multiple times, my diet is rice, beans, local fruit, and you know, broccoli and, and pumpkin that they, that they grow locally. Um, I think that the vast majority of human beings, whether that's 90%, 95%, can thrive off of a sufficient calorie plant-based diet. Um, and it's very accessible to the entire world because I've bike toured pretty much around the whole world and never have had one day where I'm not able to eat adequately or where the rice and beans are crazy expensive and it's cheaper to buy a steak. I've never seen that in my experience and I've biked in very different climates. Um, so I think that the majority of human beings can thrive on a vegan diet, but I'm also, as I say, one of the most rational vegans out there. And when I do get messages from people who follow my social media, who say, Jackson, I was vegan for four years towards that kind of four year number. I started to feel like shit. I got this health issue, that health issue, digestive issues. And then I ate some salmon or eggs and like next day I felt amazing. I am not saying that those people are lying and maybe there are certain biological cases where people need uh, animal-based nutrients in order to thrive. But 
I also have to consider my own anecdotal experience and the anecdotal experience of the majority of my vegan friends who are not YouTubers, who are not putting out, hey, it's my eighth year as a vegan and I'm feeling great because they're just living their normal lives. And I personally have been fully vegan for almost seven years now. I've had no health issues. I rarely get sick. I live a ridiculously athletic lifestyle. I feel amazing. I've published blood work results on my YouTube channel where there are no numbers, crazy out of whack. And you know, I'm thriving personally, and there's a lot of others who are, and I can also talk about, if you want, the trends that I see within these ex-vegan people who claim that meat just next day cured all their health issues. I'm not saying 100% of the time, but there is a large percentage of them who have been living vegan diets that I would not recommend, and that are not science-based. Uh, things like um, eating low calorie, high fruit, afraid to take a B12 supplement uh, type of diets that I just don't think are adequate. And then all of a sudden you eat uh, animal product, which of course is more nutrient dense versus like considering the volume of food and uh, calorically dense. And then all of a sudden these people who, in my opinion, a lot of them have been like unhealthfully calorie restricting. Uh, and if you think about it, if you're calorie restricting and on a vegan diet, because plants have so much fiber and you technically have to eat higher volume to get all those supplements and you're not supplementing with B12, I can see how eating a low calorie plant-based diet mixed with lots of stress, mixed with maybe not the most organic food can make you feel bad and then you eat an animal product and actually feel a bit better. I can see how that does make sense. But to say that just because you ate that fish and felt better than your, in my opinion, for the most part, inadequate vegan diet, to say that that also means that you are not being susceptible to these things like increasing risk of cancer, increasing risk of heart disease, which I believe are correlated with eating animal products, I think these people are not thinking long-term. So I think vegan can be, or plant-based can be for most people, maybe not all, but for the vast majority. There's a lot of stuff in there. Thanks for thanks for doing that. Um, I think one thing I'd like to sort of, because you you mentioned that you know in your travels you've read you you've kind of driven through these these small villages, and they're eating a ninety percent plant based diet, and yet they have a lot of obesity. And now you're so so they're eating no. So the average family I hang out with are not eating my diet. Absolutely not. They're fascinated with my diet, which is you know, five or six bananas in the morning, some rice, beans, and tortillas, and avocado for lunch, and rice and lentils and steamed vegetables for dinner. That I'm not saying that they're eating that. I'm saying that the typical diet out here is uh, pastries, uh, you know, filled with carbohydrates and plant oils and milk and butter in them, and then they drink Coca-Cola all day. Day, they're eating Doritos, and then they eat rice and beans with a little bit of chicken for dinner. That is not the diet that I'm recommending. These people eat way too many fast foods and fried plant foods. They are not on a low-fat, whole foods plant diet at all. And so, that's the reason they're having health issues. So would you so obese. 
So would you concede that, uh, you know, and this goes back to some of the beginning stuff, you know, when we look at the, the standard American diet where we have, you know, higher rates, rates of cancer and cardiovascular disease and whatnot, um, those same foods, these processed foods, these junk foods, these fried carbohydrates, these seed oils could just as likely be the primary driver of disease and the unprocessed, uh, you know, natural meats are not the issue. Would you, would you say that's a possibility? I would concede that that is a possibility. Absolutely. Um, I would also say that a lot of these processed foods are not vegan processed foods. Like, you know, it drives me crazy when people like post a picture of a donut and say like carbs are unhealthy. If you look at a donut, most of the calories, or maybe 50-50, are coming from animal-based fats that are in the frosting or plant oils, and then you also have a little bit of carbohydrates. But when you take a muffin or you take a donut, that's not a low-fat food. That's not a, that, that, that's not a typical vegan food. Usually a lot of these processed foods are combined with animal products like dairy and butter. But is there a chance that eating a more carnivore style diet without any uh, processed refined garbage foods like, you know, crappy wheat and plant oils and also I would say dairy and just processed junk foods is there, a, is there a chance that we just don't know yet? And for some reason, scientists have just taken a, have, have missed the ball game and, and that eating whole meat products and maybe eating nose to tail, as you guys like to say, or yeah, nose to tail, that maybe that will also contribute in the same heart disease, cancer, risk reduction factors that we see from eating a whole foods plant-based diet. I can't say that, that that's not a possibility because I don't think there's been enough uh, good information to show that. All I can say is that there's a lot of correlation between eating uh, animal products and high saturated fat diets, which is pretty much inherent in an animal product diet that does contribute a lot to disease. But who's to say, maybe that's from all the processed oils and not because of the meat. I can conceive that there is a, that I'm open-minded into the science and health community looking more into a whole food meat-based diet. And there hasn't been enough research. We'll say that. You know, if, if we wanted to test that theory, uh, you know, I would say, how would you test that theory? And you would put people on basically a carnivore style diet and see what happens. And I can tell you, you know, having seen literally thousands of people do this now, I mean, generally the people get leaner, generally their blood pressure normalizes, generally their inflammatory markers improve, generally uh, their, uh, their blood glucose stabilizes, generally, uh, you know, when we've seen these people do coronary artery calcium scans, they come back very low or zero. So I do think there is at least a growing amount of data and we can we can criticize that it's not a randomized control trial or cohort controlled or something or you know they're not control groups but in general i i think we're seeing that and so i think there that hypothesis is out there and and i think yeah, that uh, uh, i think we're going to see over the next you know five years or so studies there's already physicians that are they're implementing it in their patients with good results there already have been uh you, you case reports in the literature there are going to be more to come uh, there's already a, a couple studies that are underway. So I do think we'll see this as time goes by. And let me, and, and I think you're the, and I, I think, you know, this question, because I'll, I'll, I used to, when I first started getting out there and I was, you know, interacting with more vegans and they, you know, it would be a back and forth. And then I'd always come to the question. I said, 
you know, if your health depended upon it and you needed to eat an animal product to make yourself better, would you do that? The ones that would say, no, I would never do that. Then I would, I would kind of end the conversation because I, I think I'm not dealing with I'm with you. I'm with you. Those vegans are insane. I'm, I, I mean, I call it tribal veganism. Like, like I'll be honest. Uh, the other day I was talking with my buddy, Drew Moore, who, who I know, you know, as well. And, uh, you know, I was saying to Drew, hey, you know, I've been vegan for seven years. I feel completely great and thriving in my athletic performance of being able to change my body with muscle growth, with endurance. Sports has proven that I'm doing pretty well long term on plants. And I was vegetarian for five years before that seven years of being vegan. But you know what? I've never as a vegan introduced animal products so who's to say that i wouldn't feel better maybe i should go on a 30-day experiment of eating animal products just to see how i feel i think these vegans who say that once you go vegan for the animals you can never challenge your diet you can never go out of the box and and figure out the truth i think that is like i'm sorry vegans but i think that's so stupid i think if we came out with definitive evidence that a 10% of calories from animal product diet is far superior for energy, athletic performance, preventing disease, having better nutrition than a full vegan diet. If we came out like the best studies to prove that, I'd be the first one to have chickens in my backyard, to buy a cow per year from a farm or hunt an animal. That's how I would do it, butcher it up. And there's one life taken to put in my freezer to feed myself on a hundred is speaking up with the best data and information um, to show to show that eating some animal products is far better than a vegan diet I'd be the first to throw down the the vegan label and to eat some of those animal products but I see posts and studies like dr. Michelle McMacken who's a plant-based diet who produces Granted, epidemiological and correlation studies, not proven studies to show that even increasing uh, your diet to one egg a day increases heart attack risk from about 6% increase in males and 15% in women. Now, I'm sure you can provide a study that shows the opposite of that, but it's a complex world and I got so much information coming in and out. And the reason that I don't introduce some animal products into my diet is because the best information that I've read is uh, that keeping it as high plant as possible, supposing that you can thrive off of only plants, which I feel great. Uh, I, I haven't seen the compelling evidence to introduce about 10% of calories from animal products into my diet. But if someone out there really showed me that that was better, I'd be the first one to go out and buy some local eggs. So I, I think tribal veganism is a, is a bad, is a bad thing. Well, let me let me just pose this to you because you know the, the studies out there, as you know, there there's studies that point any which way you like. You you can find something to confirm your confirmation bias. But you as an athlete, and I don't know, you know, I mean, you're riding. I don't assume you're like racing a certain speed, so you're not probably. No, it's very easy going. Very. Right. Easy. So, but I mean, if if you were an athlete like Zach does and like I do, and we were to say objectively, let's check out my performance. Let's say I throw, you know, you know, three or four eggs into my diet in the morning when I start, you know, get a local chicken that you know, the egg's going to get, the, the egg's not going any, it's, it's already there. It's not like you're killing the chicken or anything like that. You add that to the diet and you notice that, hey, I can, I feel better. I can ride a little better. Why would you not just do that on your own for 30 days and see? I mean, what's the downside at that yeah. point? Hey, at this point, 
I am the first to concede that when I was throwing out that challenge, which again, I think is totally legitimate. I mean, if you get in a car, fly on a plane as a vegan, or you're buying fricking Ben and Jerry's vegan ice cream, you're contributing to more animal deaths than me eating a very local diet out here in Central America. And if I were to kill a chicken for the month of eating animal products and eat some eggs, like my diet is still more ethical than the average vegan who's eating a bunch of industrial food animal products. And I don't know if you were following along, but I was saying on my YouTube channel for the last couple months, you know, this is very interesting. All my friends are coming out as ex-vegan and saying that they feel so much better eating meat. Why don't I try it? Why don't I try eating a little bit of locally caught fish or some eggs? And I wanted to do it, I'll be honest, just to see. Do I feel very different because I am in my own bubble as a seven-year vegan. I don't know what it's like to eat some animal products. So as a scientist and interested and not tribal, I was saying, you know what? I should, I should try that and document it on YouTube. And I'll be honest, the amount of messages I got from tribal vegans who, who, are, who I inspire and follow me just saying, no, don't feed into these you know, ex-vegan idiots and carnivore idiots, you're just letting them get to you. You know, I disagree with those people. I don't think that you're idiots. I think that experimenting is what you need to do because we're trying to figure out what the best diet is. And I'll be honest, I was ready to do it because I can get very local animal products out here, especially eggs, chicken, and even like goat. And I was willing to try it. And I let my emotions get to me at the amount of people that were just like, you're my vegan inspiration, don't do it. And I'm not proud of that. I think that we should always be driven science-based and I'm honestly still open to the conversation of doing one of those experiments. Um, but the reason that's holding me back is one, the social criticism, I'll be totally honest. And two, I just haven't seen enough good information yet to say, that, or let me say, let me rephrase it. I have seen some compelling information from real doctors to say that even increasing your uh, saturated fat and di dietary cholesterol in small ways slightly increases your risk of, of heart disease. Now, do I think that eating a 10% of calorie from animal products diet is unhealthy? No, I keep on saying that. So I, this will be my biggest conceit of the whole interview that I should try this experiment and just see from a physical anecdotal level if I feel better and I have not mustered up the, the confidence due to the social criticism to do so. And maybe this conversation will open me up a bit more, but I guess it's complicated. Hey Jackson, let me, and, and, you know, you know, I really, really appreciate your, your willingness to not be dogmatic about this. And I, and I try not to be either. I mean, I try to tell people, you know, eat a bunch of meat, I think it's personally, you know, and again, we can disagree on the science. I think it's personally healthy, but you know, you're not going to die if you have a, you know, a slice of avocado or something like that. So um, right. what do you think about this sort of, uh, sort of push to sort of, uh, you know, mandate dietary choices in kids, like say mandatory meat-free days in school? Uh, do you think that, that, that uh, we should should just blindly accept veganism for children? Are there any are there any risk for kids? What are your thoughts around that stuff? 
No, I don't think there's any risk for kids to eat a healthy vegan diet. I personally know many families, like very personally, people I've known for years and years and seen at festivals and lived in their homes. I mean, just to name names, just to prove that I'm saying the truth. You got people like this kid, Cappy, from the Woodstock Fruit Festival. You got my good friend in Colorado, Aaron Stuber, who has two vegan kids, vegan since birth. They're doing great. I hang out with them. They're smart. They got no health issues. Of course, they're eating breast milk for the first few years of their life, which is the most important thing for, for children to eat. But, you know, you look at the American Dietetics Association that says that a proper balanced vegan diet, and I'm not saying a zero fat diet, fats are great. You need your ground flax seeds and your avocados and your walnuts, that eating a proper balanced plant-based diet from the biggest unbiased uh, nutritional bodies we have say that it can be healthy for all stages of life. And, you know, you got people like me, my Delgado, who sure ate uh, dairy growing up, but hasn't eaten meat in his life. And there's, and I think that something like a meatless Mondays is a totally great idea. I mean, kids that are eating meat at school, I'm sure it's not the most healthiest unprocessed meat. And to have one day when you're eating only vegan, you know, in my opinion, that's a great step. Uh, but do I think that we should like government mandate diets? No, I don't. I think that we should let the supply and demand uh, dictate the foods that are available. Uh, and if people want to eat meat, that's fine. But to have meatless Mondays in a school, if there was a parent that wanted their kid to eat a carnivore diet, you know, you could figure that out. It's not like I, I've, I've never seen an example of a school that is making people be vegan day, day on end. Uh, I think people should always have the choice of what to eat. But I think that considering schools are feeding kids absolute garbage like pizza and hamburgers and french fries to have one day when you're eating mainly plant based where all the best mainstream studies and information say that a high fiber high plant diet is is very good for your health. I see nothing wrong with public schools implementing a, a meatless Monday. And I'm sure you can bring your own food if you're a carnivore family and I'm sure you're going to eat meat at dinner. So I don't see any problem with that. What if you're, what if you're uh, under, uh, you know, you're a kid that can't afford, uh, you know, school lunches or you're on a, you're on a meal program and the family, you know, can't afford it. Uh, should we, should we have a option for meat for those people that don't feel like you do that feel that, that animal portents are an, are an important part of the nutrition well because oh for, for the animal for the parents that do think that meat is a adequate part is that what you're saying well, uh yeah sure. yeah you've got a parent that, that says i believe that animal nutrition is vital to my child's wealth health and well-being and i can't afford to send them to school and i depend upon federally funded funded uh you know meals and now yeah. you're saying that we're going to eat, you know, a Beyond Meat burger or, you know, whatever, right. you know, or bean burger or whatever. Uh, and I and I, I want my kids to have access to to what I feel is more nutritious. What do you What do you say about that? Um, so yeah, first off, I would say that I don't agree with that person's nutritional philosophy. And again, like, but you people do exist, so you you should have the right to eat the way that you want to eat. Um, I think the reason that schools are doing this is because. I keep saying this, but the mainstream best information we have is that people are not eating enough fruits and vegetables. They're not eating enough whole grains. So I am not afraid of kids eating a plant-based lunch. I think that's a great idea and healthy for all kids. But 
because I do believe in freedom and your ability to do things, uh, to make your own choices, and you are forced to put your kid into a public school scenario and they eat the school lunches, um, maybe, yeah, maybe I do agree that there should be like a medical exemption or spiritual exemption or something where uh, a parent could meet with a educator and say, you know, this is not what I want my kid to eat. And I think that they should be provided with a meat alternative. I can see where that is a fair thing to say, and you shouldn't force people to eat a certain diet. But on the flip side, do you think that these public school lunches are providing great vegan options for the kids and families who want to eat vegan? I mean, you could probably take it both ways there. But I think generally speaking, if you're, I mean, if you're a family that just doesn't know a lot about nutrition and you're not a carnivore and you're not a vegan, I think it's great to eat a vegan meal because they're not into any nutritional philosophy. But if you go to the public school system and you want to eat only meat, uh, I think that, yeah, maybe your kids should have the opportunity to do that because I don't think you should force people into anything. But for the general population, it is not a problem to have meatless Mondays for kids. I think too, like one of the biggest issues I see with a mandated like uh, plant-based or meatless Monday type thing in the school lunches is I see zero evidence to believe that the, the schools are actually going to produce what we would both agree upon would be a good plant-based meal. Because, you know, when I was teaching in school, like they, they had like, you know, the, the lunches provided and all that stuff. And uh, one of the options was, I mean, minus the milk carton, which I think you could replace for a juice box which then it became plant-based it was basically like yeah i mean it was it, what ended up happening is they, they get these uncrustables which is peanut butter and jelly sandwich they'd get an apple they'd get some broccoli and carrots and then the juice box and the broccoli and carrots always ended up in the garbage can the crustable would get eaten the juice box would get drank but that was about it so like i just think it gets really what i would hate to see would be like even with like the impossible burger or um the these plant-based burgers, I would, it would scare me that we would be rolling out the, just like you were saying, like the low quality meat options that we're getting at fast food restaurants and that they're getting at the school lunch programs. I would see an equally equivalent low quality plant-based option is the most likely thing that would get rolled out. Right. So, so this isn't a conversation even about vegan meat, whatever. It's just about the fact that, you know, we're giving our kids dog shit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely agree. It's devastating. Um, you should look up, you guys should look up, it's called the Muse School. It's kindergarten through 12th grade. It is uh, founded by James Cameron, the director of Titanic and Avatar. And I've actually visited this school. I have a, uh, I have a video on it. Um, it's a fully vegan uh, kindergarten through 12th grade school where they have a kitchen providing the kids with breakfast and lunch of like the highest quality all organic uh, vegan meals and um so it's a shining example but come on it's a rich private school in la like it's 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 not what's happening in the majority of school systems so uh yeah cool um jackson hey, is that do, do you have another question because i had a question for you zach yeah sure so correct me if i'm wrong but I think that a lot of the keto and carnivore athletes, uh, especially endurance athletes, 
kind of eat that type of diet in their normal life. And then upon race day or race week, will you know, jack up the carbohydrates for athletic performance. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain to me a little bit like how that fits in with your nutritional ideology? It's just something, you know, I obviously understand eating. I'm a huge carb eater. I eat 70% of my total calories every day from carbohydrates. But for people that, you know, don't believe in carbohydrates from a health standpoint to eat a lot of carbs, but you do believe that it significantly increases your immediate athletic performance, just help, help me figure out how you guys kind of rationalize that a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't speak for other people, certainly those who are following more of a strict ketogenic or classical ketogenic or a zero carb, fully carnivore approach, because that's not exactly the way I do it. Um, What I do is like, uh, my, my nutrition is periodized. So like when I hit peak training, which is oftentimes upwards, like 20 hours a week, um, I'll be bringing back some carbohydrate sources, uh, albeit relatively low, especially compared to you. Like you, you're hitting like 70% carbohydrate, you know, I might hit 20%. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll ease back down on recovery days when I'm less active. And then the in-race fueling, the way I usually tell people to look at it that I think oftentimes gets overlooked is they're looking at like what I'm eating per hour. So let's say I take in 150 to 200 calories worth of carbohydrate per hour during an ultra endurance race. You can look at that and say, oh, that's a lot of carbohydrate if you're doing that every hour. But you're looking at that in the context of a normal person's energy expenditure. You know, I'm running 100 miles during that day. So my energy expenditure is north of 10,000 calories. So then when you look at it from a percentage basis in competition, my carbohydrate is still incredibly low compared to my fat metabolization. So ultimately, like if for me, like, I mean, I kind of, I don't really like labels just because like my specific approach changes based on my lifestyle and my lifestyle is so drastically different from one day to the next if I'm competing versus recovering that it's really hard to kind of pin and pigeonhole me into kind of one ideology. So I guess my ideology is just trying to find my own personal peak performance. And that's just kind of how I've ended up finding out where I'm at, which is not a carb absent. I look at carbohydrates more like the same way I would caffeine. It's like, is it necessarily something that uh, is, is indicative of real high quality health? Probably not. A little bit can be a performance enhancer too much can probably send you off the rails. I look at carbohydrates in the context of ultra marathon or ultra endurance events, kind of the same way. Makes sense. Thank you for, thank you for explaining that. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I I think just to add to that, you know, and I can talk to you from the carnivore perspective, you know, because a lot of the knocks on ketogenic athletes is, you know, the the absence of uh, uh, accessible glucose in the form of glycogen. Well, we know that, protein and in, in, in an animal-based diet tends to be higher, much higher in protein than the classic ketogenic diet. And so we see a much better restoration, particularly of liver glycogen. And so, you know, I do very highly glycolytic stuff. I mean, this concept too, where I just won the world championships is extremely glycolytic. Now, granted, it's Agreed. not a- Congratulations, you know, that's badass. Yeah, I mean, it's not a two-hour marathon or anything like that, but I, I preferred, I, I'm not an endurance athlete. I never will be, and I never wanted to be. And so- I compete, but, but, but still I'm competing in a, in a sport that undeniably requires glucose. And I am you know, able to train and you know, push myself, even in my 50s, a very hard, uh, I think, be, because of the fact that I've got you know, just enough adequate glycogen you know, stores 
from from the extra protein I'm getting. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different physiology, and I think that's. Uh, what do you think well, about? Well what do you guys think about people like uh, Dorian Yates going plant based, and you got these vegan bodybuilders? Uh, what do you guys think about like the vegan bodybuilding community of like people who actually have you know good results? Uh, do you have any any opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, I think for one, um, you know, if we if we want to use like Nimai Delgado, as you pointed out, he grew up on a vegetarian diet, so he had access to plenty of animal nutrition to lay a foundation of muscle. Most of most of the vegan bodybuilders, uh, and you know, bodybuilding is a weird sport because it's there's a lot of drug usage in there, whether you're vegan or not. Some guys, use it, but, yeah. uh, so I don't I don't really hold those guys up as a pinnacle of health in any any regard. Now there are people that are genetically just good athletes. And they will thrive on really any any diet. I mean, you you know, you look at the NFL, and there are tremendously ripped, jacked, tremendous athletes that eat absolute garbage diet, and they just got such good genetics that they are able to make that work. Now, I will say that uh, you know, as you probably were, many of the vegan bodybuilders, I mean, they have to eat a lot of food. I mean, first of all, it's harder to get you know things like leucine through a plant-based diet, so they have to eat increasing amounts of that, or they'll use isolates, you know, pea protein isolates and things like that. I don't see that uh, uh, there are any Mr. Olympias, active current Mr. Olympias, if we want to use that as a gold standard. Of course, yeah. That are, that are vegan. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's very difficult. Um, you know. Neither I, are they carnivore, of course. Well, no, they're not carnivore, or at least not. Well, I mean, you could argue that some of the guys like uh, uh, Serge Nubray back in the 1970s was one of the top bodybuilders in the world. He was eating seven, eight pounds of meat a day. Uh, so there are examples of guys that have obtained world-class uh, body, bodies. With, is he still alive? No, he died at about 73. His, apparently his kids assassinated him or poisoned him or something like oh, that. Shit. It's kind of a weird story. But anyway, uh, so there are, uh, you know, examples of guys on a high meat-based diet, you know, Vince Caron and others in the bodybuilding world that did that without, without well, maybe without drugs. I'm not sure. He was kind of at the era where, where steroids were just coming in in the 50s. And so – that's kind of debatable, but um, yeah, I mean, I think you've got, for one, most of them are young. I mean, if you look at uh, vegan bodybuilders like Rob, uh, Robert Cheek, you know, he's been around for 20, 30 years or however, he's like 40 now. I mean, he's just not a very big guy. I mean, he's, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, he's, he's a personal friend of mine. I've trained with him. He's been on my podcast. He doesn't, he doesn't live like a bodybuilder anymore. You know, he's not putting in the, the full-time bodybuilding commitment that it would take to be a, you know, IFBB champion. Like, uh, for instance, Jahina Malik. Uh, most people don't know about her. She uh, was raised by hippie parents and claims to be vegan since birth, not vegetarian, vegan. And she's one of the only vegan IFBB pros. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally get it that there's not a lot of the highest level uh, people like bodybuilders who are vegan, uh, but there are people who have built – amazing physiques off of eating yeah, i mean i look at it you know we had a guy on the show uh rob jones uh that we had on and he's a double amputee you know and he rode rode his bike across america he ran 30 marathons in 30 days and was on the u.s paralympic rowing team so it's not that people can't do incredible things despite handicaps and, I, and obviously i think a vegan diet is puts you at a little bit of a disadvantage when it comes to athletic performance it's not that there aren't people that aren't able to 
do you know reasonably good things like a freak level athlete but it does put you at an advantage of of longevity and disease prevention based on the mainstream information yeah i mean i would say i would say if you know if it's well formulated if it's adequately supplemented and it's well supervised and you know what you're doing you're going to be in an advantage compared to somebody eating the standard american diet that is true now if you're eating a clean whole meat based diet where you emphasize on that i don't know that's the case i mean i think that's still very much up for debate. Right, right. We have to look more into that. So what is it going to take? That is one of my big questions. Um, what is it going to take to figure out that information? And why is there so much confidence in the mainstream uh, nutritional world? Again, I keep saying it, but American Heart Association, uh, Harvard School of Public Health, why have they missed the ball on an all meat diet? Like, why is there so much mainstream information day after day coming out pointing to a high fiber, high plant diet? Why, like, don't you think these, these scientists would have figured out, hey, we should try a completely zero refined food, zero carbohydrate and carnivore style diet and put that, uh, put that up and challenge that versus a whole food plant-based diet? How come... It hasn't happened yet. What's your guys' thinking behind that? Well, it's because no one really does that diet. I mean, it's, it's, it's relatively novel that, that anyone of, you know, in Western society has, has actually pursued that diet in the last, well, arguably 10, 15,000 years. And so it's not really even considered a possibility, you know. And so uh, we, we certainly, and I would concede that eating a, you know, a low junk food, whole food, plant-based diet, with adequate supplementation, assuming you get enough protein in there, which is, you know, a little bit more challenging. Yeah. I get it. about 100 grams of protein eating only whole foods every day with no uh, protein powders, and I'm about 170 pounds. Six yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would, you know, I think honestly, well, I mean, we can debate, I would see, I'd like to see you get more than about, about 170 grams, uh, particularly with all the writing you're doing, but, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's so I stay pretty, pretty strong. You can see my pics on Instagram looking pretty good, but yeah. Well, I know. I mean, I mean, you know, you, you, you know, you're still probably relatively young too. And as we get older, we need more protein. And so yeah, I'm, I'm 26 years old. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I'm 52, I'm W and you know, I'm 250 pounds and you know, I mean, so I, I, I mean, relative to most 50 year olds, I would say, you know, and I know the vegans sort of debate about this, but I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty decent, you know, physically. Uh, oh, definitely physical. physically in athletic shape. Yeah. You're doing much better than my 54 year old dad. That's for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if, if we want to look at how do we figure this stuff out, I mean, you know, I don't know that we will quite honestly, I don't have any faith. I mean, I just don't think nutrition science has the tools to tell us what we need to live long, to tell us what we need to, to, you know, ultimately avoid disease. I think these nutritional epidemiology studies are very, very, weak science. I think the randomized control trials are too difficult to do. They're too expensive. I think we're kind of left to the point of we got to figure it out for ourselves. And I think we have to say, look at ourselves today. Now you say you're, I feel healthy today and I don't doubt that you feel that way. And I think if you continue to feel healthy and continue doing what you're doing, what, what you're doing works for you, then I think that's the best you can do. You know, conversely, I'm in the same situation. I'm in my fifties. I feel like literally 20 years younger than I am performing athletically what I was doing at least a decade ago. And so uh, I have to say, you know, in body composition, well, I mean, I didn't have abs until I turned 50. I mean, and this is something, you know, I, it wasn't like I was, uh, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you're 150 pounds. I mean, I'm not as impressed with a guy. 150 pounds. And, no, I'm 170 pounds, but I'm also okay. freaking cycling 10,000 miles. It's well, easy. Well, I mean, for sure. Me. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm exercising for 15 minutes a day most days. I mean, I don't yeah, do. I don't, yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I'll probably spend two minutes on the road a day, and I'll do 300 push-ups, and that's it for for me for today. I mean, so, um, you know, I think you've got to look at how do you feel, how do you perform. You know, these biomarkers are very misleading. They're not very they're, they're too, you know, there's too many, too many nuances around that stuff to depend upon holy appointment. I agree. I agree. And I think that that is the most important to do something that works for you. But it's just also very compelling to me that, you know, you put someone with type two diabetes on a low fat whole foods diet, like my friend, Robbie Barbero, who is whole uh, business and career is getting people to cure their type two diabetes and you can have him on the podcast. He's incredibly inspiring. He's called Mindful Diabetic Robbie. And he's got upwards of the 90-something percentile of his patients. He's not a doctor, but uh, they go from a standard American diet, not a carnivore diet, but a standard American diet, low-fat, uh, high-carbohydrate diet, uh, whole foods, and they get rid of their type 2 diabetes within weeks. Uh, then you have the, only, the majority of proven studies to reverse heart disease, not from a carnivore diet, not from a meat diet, but from a plant-based diet. And again, we keep on coming back to that's not a knock on the carnivore diet because it's always comparing it to a more of a standard American diet with meat and refined carbohydrate foods. So I'm not knocking the carnivore diet. It's just uh, I think there's more information than just I feel great eating a bunch of meat when we have so much good information that eating high fiber, high plant diets reverses people's disease but at the end of the day you're right we just gotta i guess get more carnivores out there publishing their long-term results and if it shows that they're uh having the same percentages of uh like health markers in terms of longevity athletic performance all of that as long-term vegans then maybe there is a chance in this complex world of biology that both of those diets are uh really good in terms of long-term uh, lifestyle choices, but um, yeah. yeah well, I and awesome. I think too, I think like to, to go back to your question about how are we going to figure this out? And I think like, I think we, if, if we're looking for a magic bullet in the sense that we're going to find one specific dietary approach, that's just going to be a slam dunk for everyone. Um, my guess is we wouldn't find that. My guess is we would maybe find a handful of approaches that are, that have like enough similarities that kind of eliminate all the stuff that's making us fight an uphill battle from the nutrition. And then we're going to find people being very successful on all of those. So uh, I think, you know, if there's something where the vegans and the meat based folks can kind of find parallels, I think those are the first places to look and then let's get rid of the stuff that we know for a fact are not going to be positive health marker or positive for our health markers. And, and you know, part of that could just be eating in a way that's not, you know, to excess. I think that's one thing we see with the standard American diet too, is most people eating a standard American diet are eating more than they need to be eating. And that's a huge driver for, for negative consequences as well. So, you know, you can make a strong, or at least I believe you can make a strong argument. If you're going to follow a fairly crappy standard American diet, uh, you're going to have an incredibly hard time staying within your energy for the average person staying you know, within your energy demand. So then we have to look at how is it the lab versus the field, what's applicable there. And, you know, if people can't put into practice what we're seeing in labs with, 
you know, a standard American diet, then why are we even attempting to try to make that work? Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's really where, where we end up is like, we, if we could get like a handful of workable options for folks and then let them at that point individualize and find out, well, what works best for me, I think that'd be a huge win for everybody. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I mean, I would point out, I mean, cause you talked about diabetes reversal. And I, I, you may or may not be aware of the Verta health data where they've, 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 you know, quote unquote reverse diabetes in, you know, 60, 70% of their population with a low carbohydrate diet. So there is evidence, you know, in the, in the literature that is being published that shows that there is more, more than one way to reverse emergency disease. Right. That goes with what Zach was saying. Maybe it's kind of those two extremes are really where it's at. Like well, just getting rid of that middle ground of eating a standard American diet and both of the options get good results. There's a chance. Well, I mean, like I said, obviously I've seen the good results on, on, on the other side. And certainly I will concede that there, there, there's been some improvements in, in health on a vegan style. Now, I, just somebody, somebody asked me to, to ask you about your, do you, is that, do you have a dog? Is that your dog, your dog? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Maggie. I actually just posted on my, Maggie has an Instagram account. It's called Vegan Healer. She's a blue healer. And, she, uh, and She's riding with you across the, uh, how do you get her to ride with you across the, across the damn world? That is right. Let me tell you. Um, so I actually just posted on my main Instagram page uh, today, Plantriotic, which is my YouTube and Instagram. I posted a transformation shot of her from when I rescued her from the shelter. Because of course, as a vegan, I don't condone animal breeding of any kind, whether that's cows, pigs, chickens, or dogs. It's a huge problem that we have these animals in the world that are not contributing to the ecosystem. They're just resource suckers for human entertainment and food in my opinion and that goes with dogs too we shouldn't have these breeds of dogs they're not contributing to the ecosystem thus they're not good for the planet but because we're in a situation where there are lots of animals in shelters i do believe in adopting animals of course so i started my trip up in 2017 in september by myself in alaska i flew to anchorage alaska and i rode my bike just me all the way down the west coast of Alaska, the Yukon Territory of Canada, and British Columbia, uh, just solo. And in those four months, I thought a lot about whether I wanted to try this out with a dog, because I follow a lot of people online who have bike toured with dogs, and I saw people doing it on Instagram and looked into it and messaged a bunch of people and got the confidence that I could do it. And when I passed through Los Angeles and I was staying at my parents' place, because that's where I'm from, I decided to take about a month or two off the bike and rescue a dog. And I researched that blue healers are just, uh, it's a type of Australian cattle dog, are extremely intelligent, love to do tricks and learn skills, and also have insane amounts of energy and are extremely loyal to their human companion. So I went around a few shelters around LA and I found Maggie. She was a two-year-old obese as hell blue healer. So she's currently 40 pounds and you can see on her Instagram, vegan healer or my Instagram, I post so much about her, how she's incredibly fit now. She, her longest running day on this trip, uh, she ran 30 miles in one day 
uh, of course, with rest breaks, and it was a mild day in Belize, there was no elevation gain, uh, and there were a bunch of rivers, so she could cool off, but she can run 30 miles in a day voluntarily, uh, and when I got her, you know, she's 40 pounds now, which is her adequate weight, she was 71 pounds when I rescued her from the shelter. I mean, her family before must have been putting her in a crate, feeding her garbage, uh, and she was super vicious too. She was biting everybody. She was a mess. And with about two months of calorie restriction, lots of running and a lot of love, she turned into the dog she is now. And so here's how we travel. Well, first off, you got to watch my videos and because I show you everything, but in there it's folded up right now, but that's her trailer. So I pull a trailer with a dog bed uh, behind my bicycle. Here's my bicycle. Uh, right now I'm in my Airbnb in uh, San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. And so I pull a trailer behind and Maggie can rest and chill in the trailer as long as she wants, or she can come and run alongside me. We have an incredible relationship now. Oh, you want to play here? Let's see, Maggie. Um, we have an incredible relationship and situation going where you know, we just communicate with each other on a really epic level because, you know, I've spent the last 500 or so days with her all day, every single day, period. And uh, so the way it works is in the morning when it's cool out, she'll run for about an hour alongside me. We move incredibly slow, like five miles per hour when she's at a nice consistent running pace. And then when she gets tired, we drink a bunch of water and she hops in the trailer behind me and, and I pull her. So that's an added 40 pounds on my bike. And we just switch off doing that all day. Uh, and, you know, we take lots of rest. You, you know, I meet a lot of cyclists who are biking 100 kilometers per day, day after day. They hate their life. It's way too challenging. We bike for about a week and then we'll couch surf or camp or get a hotel or Airbnb for a week and rest and, and chill out. Um, and let me talk a little bit about her diet. So I did a bunch of research, of course, and talked to many veterinarians and looked up dogs, uh, like certain vegan dogs who have lived, one of the longest living dogs ever was actually a vegan blue healer uh, who lived to be 25 years old. And I've never purchased animal products for Maggie. That's why I call her a vegan dog. I've never bought dog food with animal products, never purchased meat for her. I cook her food when I cook my food. So her diet looks like uh, a very cooked down, well cooked and mashed uh, rice, sweet potatoes, lentils, and vegetable oils, essentially hot, like 30, 30, 30 uh, in percent of the macronutrient breakdown, 33, 33, 33 fat, protein, carbs. And she is vegan to the extent that I'd say 90% of her calories come from the food that I make her, which by the way, she loves her food. She eats it immediately. She's extremely fit. She's extremely smart. She has no digestive issues. She hasn't had health issues. Uh, she's very healthy, but because of the way we travel, she eats meat all the time. She's finding bones in the street. We stay with people who are eating meat and, and they give her food. Uh, I've stayed on a farm before, uh, the farm I was referencing, the mango farm in Southern Baja. And this woman I was living with had a bunch of hens running around her property, completely free range, dropping about 10 eggs per day and neither I or this woman were eating eggs. So I, you know, 
Maggie for like two months that I was living there was eating, you know, raw eggs in addition to the food that I make for her. So she's not a fully vegan dog. She probably gets about 10% of her calories from animal products. But other than that, she is a vegan dog. I'm going to guess that's her favorite. And a rescued <laughs> vegan dog. Like, I, 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 I do not condone... Uh, buying animals from breeders and i hope to see a world one day where we don't even have the opportunity to buy dogs period whether we rescue them or buy them from breeders because they don't serve a purpose in our ecosystem and they're just for our entertainment do you uh, i'm just just another question as you're riding through the roads you know down mexico and south america is there any concern about safety? I mean, personal safety. I mean, there, there's some concern that maybe, maybe a bit of a dangerous thing to do. Any so I was scared that? shitless. Like when I was, you know, ready to cross into Tijuana, I was like, holy shit, am I really doing this? I'm as vulnerable as hell. I travel with my computer. I got my nice bike. I got no weapons on me. I carry a little taser, but what is that going to really do? When we live on bicycle, you are forced to camp lot. I camp trees off the side of the highways. I camp in the backyards of local, my, you know, four bags, saddlebags on my bicycle. And, you know, if three guys wanted to run up to me and take all my shit, they could do that any day, every single day. And I have zero protection except for Maggie, which, you know, she loves me so much. She gets pissed at people if they come and try to mess with me. But you know, I haven't been in the United States now for over a year. I crossed into Mexico in February of 2018. And in that time, I've traveled solo through Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, El Salvador, Honduras, and now Nicaragua. And I've slept on the side of the road. I slept with locals. And I have not had even one sketchy experience. I have not had one person try to steal my shit. Uh, the only thing I get is local people saying, can I give you water? Can I give you food? Um, it's been absolutely incredible and a sign of how good humanity is. And I think the vast majority of the propaganda of why people, especially from the States, think that these countries are so dangerous is because if you're biking in the nighttime and you're getting drunk and buying drugs, you're probably going to have a problem. I don't do any of those things. I do the very basic stuff to stay safe. I don't buy drugs. I don't bike in the nighttime. And uh, I have seen this as a very safe place to travel. Um, but of course, could anything happen? Yes, it could happen. And all I can say is I'm a little crazy and this is how I feel life being lived in the greatest extent for me. You know, I grew up in the middle of Los Angeles. I never went camping. I I was, I had a deficiency in living an adventurous life in like real places in the world of people who have real struggles and this lifestyle attracted me and I fully intend to keep biking all the way to Argentina, but I'm not doing this forever. I want to settle down. I want to find a partner. I want to have a family. I want to find a girlfriend first. Of course, that's something I'm really looking for. It's, it's very lonely doing this, um, but so yeah, I'm not going to be living this way forever, but in how I live, and I have not run into one. Well, that's good to hear. Um, we've been going for over two hours, guys, so I think that we got some good information. Uh, Jackson, thank you so much for coming on and giving us your perspective. I think it's, you know, it's nice not to always be in an echo chamber. I think we both learned from, from this little exchange here. Um, tell people how they can find you. 
where, 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 you know, I, I don't know if you're going to have somebody meet you in, in, uh, you know, Guyana or something like that. I don't know where you're going next, but, uh, you know, let people yeah. know how you know you and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So everything of mine is called Plantriotic. It's like patriotic, but plant. And that is mainly on Instagram and YouTube and my podcast, the Plantriotic podcast, which I haven't posted recently, but I have over a hundred interviews on there over the last four years. Uh, and I post a ton on my Insta story. I probably have the most exciting Insta story in the world, I would even say, because of how crazy my lifestyle is. So I post a lot on Insta story, what I'm eating, where I'm traveling, the hardships, everything. And I have over a thousand YouTube videos uh, over the last five years of posting where I show my bodybuilding, my travel. And, you know, even if you're not into the things that I'm talking about nutritionally, a lot of my videos are travel vlogs where I take you through an entertaining 10 minute video of my day living on a bicycle. So it really is a fun thing to check out. And please reach out to me, uh, go subscribe to my YouTube channel, check out Vegan Healer, Maggie's Instagram. And I really want to say like, thank you guys for having me on. This has been an in-depth conversation. Uh, we have heard each other on both sides. I think we really have agreed on a lot that I'm kind of pretty open-minded that you guys might have something real that hasn't been studied enough. And it might be true that you can live a really healthy lifestyle on the high, high meat and low processed food diet. And I also love that you can agree that there's a lot of evidence to show that a high plant-based diet without any crappy processed foods also produces results. So I, I think this has been really fun. Again, I appreciate it. And, uh, and I'm really happy how this went. Uh, let me ask you a question. Be honest. Am I one of the most rational vegans that you've met or no? You know, I would say, I, I, would, I would venture to say that most vegans are probably rational. It's just the ones that I run into, particularly <laughs> in the world of the internet. You know, right. there's a lot of knuckleheads out there. And there's a lot, wheel. Of, a lot of zealotry and craziness. Pouring, pouring sugar on their fruits and shit. I mean, it's just stupid. And, and, and saying that, you know, there's no, like hunting is unethical. I mean, it's just stupid. Yeah. And I think like, um, I mean, obviously we didn't meet in person, but this is as close as you can get without meeting in person. And you know, I, I still haven't really ever run into a vegan in person that wasn't really nice and seemingly open-minded. So yeah, I do think like one of the biggest uphill battles that you and the other folks in the plant-based movement that have kind of an open mind and actually want to get to the root of some of this stuff is just kind of that loud minority within your group that um, turns it into more of an ideology yeah. than a let's find some health outcomes. So, but you know, regardless, yeah. thanks for giving us over two and a half hours. I think this is our longest podcast so far. Um, and uh, we will link all that stuff, your YouTube, Instagram, uh, and podcast to the show notes. So listeners can go check that stuff out. Um, otherwise, uh, glad you've been safe and have fun on your journey southbound. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. 
Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.